Hello and welcome to episode 118 of Shoulder to Shoulder Podcast, telling stories from the LAFC community match by match, fan by fan, story by story. Folks, this week we have a fantastic guest for you. We are doubling down on Shabo from last week with another killer guest for you this week. Joining us is none other than the Wunderkind himself, Mr. Will Kuntz. You know him as the Senior Vice President of Football Operations and Assistant General Manager for LAFC. We are really excited to ask him about some of those roster build, maybe even some DP questions coming up here in a minute. Also joining us this week is our opponent correspondent for the Colorado Rapids. Once again, Matt Pollard will be with us from Holding the High Line. As always, my name is Jonathan Reimer, and joining me for this episode, my glorious co-hosts, Christopher Sines and Christian Aparicio. Gentlemen, good evening. Good evening, good evening. Happy to be here and talk some football. It's been awesome in terms of results the last couple of matches and awesome guests. I'm excited to have you all hear this conversation we have coming up. Absolutely. What's going on, Black and Gold family? It's good, man. LAFC is riding high and definitely spirits are going really well. And it's just nice whenever whenever the team's clicking and doing well, it always makes it really easy to get together and have these conversations. Well, speaking of the team clicking, let's go ahead and recap the fans on the past two wins. So. From our last recording until now, first and foremost, this weekend, we faced off against the Onions at the bank, and LAFC regrettably did not walk away with the win, but were able to scratch a tie out of this game with a late goal. So here we have it, boys, 2-2 versus the Philadelphia Union. There was a lot going on in this game, and I'm really curious to hear some of your takeaways from this game before I dive into my thoughts about this game and everything that happened. I'm curious, what are your thoughts? Do you feel like we were able to salvage a point from this game or did we lose two points in this game? And I think at the onset, that is the big question surrounding our draw versus Philadelphia. The onset, everyone said, oh, look, this is first in the East versus first in the West. This could be a preview of some postseason football to come. And yet the game scratched itself out to a 2-2 tie. Did we learn anything from this game that we want to take away from it? Or what, if anything, can we learn from a 2-2 draw? I think some of the takeaways, I'll credit Vince and Max for, for bringing this to my attention. And there was boxing going on the same same night, uh, but styles make fights. And I think this is one of those games where it was a counterattacking team versus an attacking team. And, um, and I don't think they adjusted the way they play. They play this way in terms of pressing and counterpressing, but also allowing the team to have the ball at times which is what Philadelphia does. And it reminds me of one thing I did say to my wife during the game when we were attacking the first 10, 15 minutes. And I told her if they get one chance, they're going to score. No joke. Like not too long after I said that it happened and they scored first and drew first blood. And we predicted that last episode that all three of us said they would score first. We all did think we, we would turn it around and, and score. But if you think of it from percentages perspective, they only had maybe two shots on goal and they both went in. The likelihood of that happening is very low. Um, and then us controlling the ball, controlling the tempo, taking a lot of shots on goal. We should have scored more than we did. We put quite a bit of shots on frame. We were just unlucky, especially towards the end. So I think it feels like we should have won. It doesn't feel like we salvaged the point. I think in the end, the result was maybe slightly unfair, but they executed. And that's why they're where they are. They've been able to draw games and win games despite not having the ball, not being ball dominant and uh, execute on their game plan, which is, you know, staying compact, 
and then using their a few players that are creative and um, lethal to be able to, to strike. So I don't think we learned anything new from either team, apart from, I think, stamping that we can, against a quality team, never say die. We're going to uh, be able to hold down the 10 minutes. Another thing that reminded me of the previous couple seasons, if we extracted the last 10 minutes of each match, we would have had even more points than we have, even though we have a historic point total since the inception of the team. And now I think we can go into the last 10, 15 minutes of a match and feel like, all right, we can clamp down and we can attack and feel comfortable with our defensive backing and uh, a keeper. So those are my main takeaways from the match. Um, overall, I think it was an exciting game. First Saturday night match game too, which I was really happy about not having to dread a Sunday night game. My biggest takeaway from the game was the fact that LAFC just continued to fight, even though they were down twice, they came back to fight. And when you look at this team this whole season long, the only other time that they had lost against the Galaxy, they were continuing to fight in the end of the match. Uh, they were fighting and fighting and fighting. Yes, of course, it's a derby, but they just showed that the fight was there, whether or not they were down in previous times this season when they were down, they would come back to tie and then eventually pull into the lead. And so it just shows the the amount of fight and belief in this team, the ability to, like Christian just said, never say die. I think that that was one of the biggest silver linings of the overall night. I thought that the stadium atmosphere was electric. It was a good show. I think that this could be a foreshadowing of something we see. And it's just nice to know that LAFC's record is representative of the ability that they have. And uh, we hadn't necessarily been tested too many times this season with higher ranking opponents. So it's, it's good to show that we don't have our record based on the fact that we've played teams that are not necessarily in their best form or playing their best football. And we just got the victories over softer opponents that um, we can hang and, and perform well against top tier opponents uh, in the league. So let's go back to that first goal for a second, because some of the nationally broadcast talking head shows <clears throat> extra time and, and some other people around the black and gold community are pinning that first goal and they're blaming Ilya Sanchez for what went in. And, and I've watched the replay a dozen times. And yes, I mean, is there a chance that Sanchez could have gotten back and done something about the goal? Sure, but that's not his job. It's Palacios who lost his man. It's Fall who had a chance to break down the cross and was left there with the sole defender without any player on him. And I'm just fuzzy on how we expect a defensive mid to track back and clear that ball out. There were a couple defensive breakdowns that led to that counterattack on the first goal and a couple opportunities we had, but people need to lay off Sanchez for that goal. That's just ridiculous to me. It's Palacios, man. He lets him get the wrong side of him and he gets beat on it. And, and that frustrated me quite a bit about that first goal. And I don't know if you guys agree or disagree with me on this one, um, but that kind of goal is a goal that is preventable. We just got caught on a counter. And Palacios has got to get to the right side of his man there as the defender. You can't let your man beat you on that one. And if anyone, the next person to step in there has got to be Mamadou Fall, who's kind of lost in no man's land and helps play the whole thing on side. Uh, it's not Sanchez who needs to retreat back. I don't know if you guys agree or disagree. I agree. I'll mention something on the second goal, but the first goal, I agree. I think on the second goal, I sit in the Southwest end and it was similar. I think Palacios was trying to play him offside didn't really notice that toward the center of the back line, you know, someone was keeping them on. And I think it was two kind of turnovers, what you expect from Philadelphia in terms of the way they counter press and press. 
But then also the reaction to the loss of the ball was too lackadaisical. There was lack of focus and it happened twice and they executed on both goals and both goals were not easy to score. So I can't blame Max Capo. They were pretty good, well-placed goals that, I mean, if he makes a save, it's it's a save that's beyond expectation and he'll give us a handful of those during the season. But I think the defense uh, allowed them to be a little too comfortable to be able to take the shots in both of them. But it's nothing that's outside of their game plan. Philadelphia, this is what they do. They turn you over towards the, the, the third of, of what you're defending and try to execute it. They had two chances and they got them. Percentages-wise, like I said, it shouldn't have happened, but nothing out of character for them. The second goal was a little more fluky, right? I mean, you got two defenders challenging the ball. you got a keeper there. They're just able to, you know, float a perfect little dink into the corner. That one, I mean, those types of goals are, are going to happen. You know, those goals you can't stop. The first one to me was the one where I was a little more frustrated. Chris, I don't, I'm curious if you have the same opinion. I mean, it was, but if you look back on it too, I think that there was a lot of players that didn't expect it to get past that first striker. That cross that came in off of the left, you could see that there was a Philadelphia player in the box and it, he might have just been one step behind where he needed to be in order to chip that ball in himself, or maybe he let it pass on purpose as a decoy. But I think that, you know, you look back and you watch that and you're like, I would have expected the first attacker to be to be able to have chipped that ball in. And it it looked like Max might have been a little flat footed because, it you know, out of his peripheral vision, he might have seen the same thing. But needless to say, you know, I, I think that on a superficial level, if you want to just say, like, who was the closest man to the person who put the goal in the back of the net, you're not looking at how the play developed. And outside of the 18, when the ball's getting brought in, nobody was pressing that ball. And then he ended the Philadelphia player ended up passing to the outside. And, you know, could that have been handled better? You know, whose man was that originally? Could that have been handled better? So I, I think that assessing blame is pointless at this point in time, especially when it comes to somebody like, Ilya Sanchez, who has been, you know, when you evaluate these players and you look at them for their full body of work, you know, if a player makes a mistake, like players are going to make mistakes, everybody is going to make mistakes and throughout their careers and, and things like that. It's how often you minimize those mistakes. And I feel like Ilya Sanchez has been a player that's been fairly perfect in almost all sense of that word with the way that he has filled in for that role. You know, so it's it's almost like out of character for what we've seen so far this season. So, uh, you know, I don't I don't see any benefit in going here and being like, oh, that, you know, that guy, that guy. It's you know what, if it if it's something that continues to happen, you know, like set pieces. Right. In the last couple of seasons, we had set pieces that we were always getting scored on on corner kicks and things like that. And, and we would look and try and analyze how is this a repeated problem? But this whole thing with Elias Sanchez, it's it's it hasn't happened before. I, I don't feel like that's something that's going to happen again. And so it's like I don't feel that I don't see the purpose or the need to sit here and try and point the finger. Yeah, I, I don't still don't feel that it's Sanchez's fault on that goal. Uh, I'm still going to say it's Palacios's man that scores in Palacios that needs to get back there. And I have no idea why. The talking heads of the world are laying it on him. But, uh, you know, moving on throughout later in the game, I mean, obviously Opoku has the fantastic strike. The second goal comes in, as Christian was just talking about. And then Escobar becomes, I, I believe, the 4,000th player, different player to score for LAFC this season. I could be off by a few on that one. But um, it's just amazing how Johnny Allsquad this team is when it comes to scoring. It doesn't matter who it is, center backs, outside backs, midfielders, forwards, everyone on this team is getting goals. Uh, and Escobar just became the latest to add himself to that tally, and, and I love it. Waiting, I'm just waiting on Max Capote to score. <laughs> 
Well, if Max scores, that's probably not good. That probably means we're desperate for a goal down late and he's come forward. Unless penalties. he finds a way to penalties, maybe, or he finds a way to just catch a keeper sleeping and hits one the entire length of the field, which uh, would hearken to my indoor moments. As I've seen a few of those in the indoor world. That would be that would be pretty sensational. You know, you look at the the goals that were scored, especially we we're talking about Franco Escobar. I mean, he had almost scored a goal just a few minutes prior to that in like the 70 in the like it was like the 75th minute or whatever, where he did that. It was the corner kick that came in with the comb over pass that fell right to him. And he did like that Superman header dive. And, and I mean, that was almost a goal too. So I, I think that, you know, we have a lot of players that are always in the right open spaces. And especially when we talk about the, the match that just happened yesterday and we talk about those goals, I mean, our players on set pieces are just, they're in the right places and where they need to be. And they're getting the space and they're getting the opportunities and they're taking their shots. So it's, you know, I think that that is part of the DNA of this, of this team for this season. And, and I think that we're going to see a lot more of this and we need to stop thinking that they are not a common factor. I think that these are just things that it's like, these players are in the right positions. They know where they're supposed to be and the ball is going to drop to them. And it, and it, we have, it looks like several players. When you look at these set pieces, there's several players that could be in the right position at the right time. And it's just, it's, it's working out great. Well, speaking of players who almost scored, Mamadou Fall with a Freddie Mercurial moment of bicycle glory almost finds the back of the net. And yet then you, you got to tip Philadelphia. Their defense was all over the place throughout the course of this game. A lesser defense. And this is a game we absolutely run away with. They were blocking passes and shots inside the box. I mean, I could I lost count. There were so many of them. But that bicycle from fall, I thought for sure was going in. And once again, they cleared it off the line. They managed to effectively eat time and employment of some dark arts, perhaps, especially there in stoppage time, which I really didn't understand. Four minutes of stoppage time, about two and a half of those minutes were a little confrontation back and forth when Philly decided to have a moment of petulance. And of course, LAFC responds by having our entire team rush forward and, and take offense to that. And then play resumes and it was no added stoppage time for any of that at the end, despite the fact that we were pressing and, you know, searching for that, that third goal, which I found a little frustrating, but pro refs going to pro ref. And uh, there was one other moment, speaking of pro refs, where Raito gets absolutely cleaned out in the box. Now, I know the pass didn't make it to Chicho Arango, cut down the man before him. So I guess that means that you're allowed to foul him and there's no penalty. We even tweeted this out. We tweeted out like a quick little one second video where the Philadelphia player jumps up next to Chicho and then just completely bends over and throws a booty and swings himself through him and cleans Chicho completely out on the play. And because the ball didn't make it to him, it's not a foul, which I don't understand because he got completely cleaned out, shot above the head, and somehow not a foul. But I, I don't know if you guys um, saw the tweet that we put out or had any thoughts on that because I, I was pretty infuriated. Certainly Fall was frustrated when it came to tweeting because he tweeted after the game. One of the funniest moments uh, from the player interaction with social media this year uh, where he basically said, like, look, you're going to roll out to the West Coast and park the bus? Come on. I thought was great as well, too. So thoughts on any of that, boys? I think all of that was valid. Ref stunk, especially in the last 10, 15 minutes of the match. I think he didn't take control. He allowed maybe a little bit too much. I think Chicho's foul was a foul. 
and I should have been a PK, but I didn't even go to VAR or anything like that. And I agree with you, coming even before you started making these, it's like, I think they had two or three goal line clearances. So this is why I feel like they got away with the tie. And then I feel like we, we should have gotten the win. But anyway, in the dark cards at the end, it was so frustrating. One LAFC partaking, especially knowing how the ref was behaving. But I think, yes, you know, emotions get high and you kind of have to defend your ground, especially at home. But what I didn't like about Philly, and it sucks that we only really play East Coast teams once a year, is like they would get into this altercation, grab the ball, then go toss it somewhere else, and then grab it again and like put it somewhere else. It's just so annoying. So I hope that we get a chance to play them again, whether it's U.S. Open Cup or MLS Cup or anything like that, because I just don't like their players. Their coach is cool. Uh, but you know they have a little bit about of that Philly in them, and yeah, Philly's not. I don't live there for a reason. It's not a town known for brotherly love, right? Cheesesteak, lots yeah, of good cheesesteak. Most ironic name for a city, for sure. I do hear it's always sunny there, but um, I'm, I'm not sure if that's entirely believable. But the Mamadou Fall tweet about them parking the bus, uh, I thought was was pretty funny. So moving on, gentlemen, we take on. The pesky pine trees of Portland shouts to my broadcast partner, Philly, and one of my favorite alliterations. So Portland comes into town for the U.S. Open Cup. We faced Portland twice before in the U.S. Open Cup. Two years ago, we knocked them out. They paid us back last year by knocking us out. Well, 18 and 19, obviously, and then, then the COVID break. But now that we are back to Open Cup, it was our turn to knock them out. Uh, we had a fantastic first half goal from Chicho, just a beautiful link up between fall waiting for the runner to come around in Opoku. They lost their defensive alignment on the overlap and he was able to have fall go uh, make that pass to a completely wide open Opoku who fires in the cross to just the cheekiest of little backheel flips and no longer a Carson, but still always Bingus himself, Mr. Dave Bingham. Uh, allowed that shot in right on the post. I don't think he was expecting the shot to come to his left at all. He clearly looked like he was going to expect a pass coming into Moose to his right, and he gets caught looking the other way, and boom, we get our first. Mamadou Fall, after getting denied on the brilliant bicycle opportunity over the weekend, finds his goal on a perfectly placed scramble inside the box to get us our second goal, and we advance to the round of 16, we will find out later on, I believe this evening, exactly who's going to qualify. And then there'll be another shakeup and some assignments to come as to who we play out after that. But um, do you guys have any thoughts on our U.S. Open Cup match versus Portland? Aside from my one note on this, which is people come to the bank, enjoy these games. This was a really, really fun game. It was a great one to be at. You get a chance to see some players you might not normally see as far as our starting 11 and then got to see all our starters come in late and a dominant LAFC performance. But at last I heard 11,000 was the turnout for the game, which is a half full bank, which is disappointing for me. And I know the U S open cup required you to reinvest and buy those tickets and opt in, opt out, all that kind of stuff. But I'm just disappointed that there were only 11,000 people there to see what I thought was an absolutely fantastic game fall jumping up into the 3252 and putting the sombrero back on again from Munoz, um, you know, shouts to the empire boys. I, so many wonderful moments happened. I just wish more people could have been there to see it. 11,000, even though it's not something we're happy with, I would say the rest of the league is jealous of, especially the 32 showing out. So I want to give them a big up to so being able to perform on a Tuesday after a weekend match. 
So that's the one thing I say I'll say about that. Mean takeaway, we dominated most of the match. I think the game only really shifted once they brought in some of their starters and rotated in Sebastian Blanco, Nils Goda, and some of the other guys, Yimi Chara. And we were able to sustain that in the last 10 minutes and clean, keep the clean sheet. So I was happy about that. I was happy that even though we, we had a semi-rotated squad, we still have a really strong squad that could be a starting team on the weekend. And that's something that's unusual for, for me to feel like we can do this in a U.S. Open Cup. And I think after the match, Chirmula was talking about how the team had been preparing to having multiple weeks with three matches for that week. So, you know, I don't know how, what that approach was in terms of the loads on the practice or a lot of game film and studying up the next opponent. But so far, early slash getting into mid part of the month, there hasn't been any significant injury woes, although we, they are piling up. But I don't think it's because of this run in the Open Cup in the kind of first quarter to third of the season. So these are the things that I take away that the, the squad is deep. And um, we were able to dominate another game against a tough opponent. And I'm always happy when LAFC is the piney pitfall for the Portland Timbers. Nice. Love it. Chris, 2-0 shutout for Max. He had a sensational game. Come on, where's my squirrel action? <laughs> yeah, 2-0. Two, two he got man of the match. I was a little... I mean, Max had a great game. He had some amazing stops and saves. Not to say that Max didn't deserve the man of the match. I just I felt that the pass that Mamadou Fall had made to Apoku that that started that whole chain reaction for Chicho to score and Fall then also getting the second goal I thought that he was you know I, I like at the end of the match you try and think like who's gonna get the man of the match scarf from the 3252 and I had expected it to be Fall not to, like I said not to say that Max didn't deserve it he played a great game too but that was my pick would have I was uh thinking more so of uh, Falls contributions to the match, which I I mean they Max said it in the broadcast. Amadou Falls is not going to be with us for very long. You know he is a young talented player and he is great with both feet. He is lethal in the aerial attack. I I just I don't I don't see Mamadou Fall being with us for very long. So we as a fan base need to really really cherish the uh, the time that he's with us uh, and realize that it is probably closer to the end than we would like all right so look next game by all means message me because i am in the conversation of people who help vote for who gets the man of the match scarf uh, and occasionally i will cast that vote on behalf of d9u depending on on what the other d9u leadership uh, is up to in the moment but uh, i often am the person who casts that vote for d9u so you could throw that at me. Anyone out there, you you think you know who should be man of the match. By all means, message me. Wait, one oh, one yeah. thing I would say about Max Grippo, and let's not forget it was his birthday too. A clean sheet and his birthday coming up. It's one, it's one of these gifts that, it's true. you know, I it's forgot memorable. about that. Mm-hmm. Right, let's let's right, make the right. keeper, let's I've... make the keeper feel good, you know. We need him the rest of the season and he had so, quite the performance. Nah, I voted for Crippo and I, at the time, didn't even know that it was his birthday the next day and we were going to be singing him happy birthday because I had missed that memo. I have been waiting all season for the signature game from Max. He hasn't really faced a whole lot of adversity. I mean, he's probably faced more tests with a swab up the nose this season than he's faced tests in goal. I, he really hasn't been challenged. So he hasn't had that signature game where he's been able to step in and cement himself as the number one for LAFC. In fact, I think he faced about as many shots in this game as he did all of last month combined. 
And he finally had a slew of phenomenal saves, came out and won balls, came out and had an aggressive conversation with the ref at one point in time as well, too. All of those things to me meant that this was, for me, the first time this season in which we could put the Max Kripo stamp on this game that he absolutely came out and had a brilliant night. And for all the flashes of brilliance we've seen from him throughout the course of this season, and some moments that we've described as opportunities for his game as well, too, he finally had that signature game. Fall came out and did things we expect from Fall. His passing was sensational, and something that he does not get enough credit for is his ability to move the ball around. On that first goal, just knowing how long to wait for Opoku to come around and make that overlapping run on the corner. You know, seeing that the defender had lost his man marking and, and the fact that he got that pass off led to the first goal, right? Fall does so many little things right on the offensive end. But again, on the defensive end, you, you know, he has some areas of opportunity in his game. And I think you could have easily given Fall man of the match in this game for his prowess offensively. And the fact that, you know, we gave up no goals and kept that clean sheet was a lot to do with him as well, too. But this was finally the signature Max game. Uh, and that's why I voted for him completely unaware that it was his birthday the following day. But happy birthday, Max. Nonetheless, um, once I, I realized what we were doing, I was more than happy to sing to him. But uh, I do completely agree. I, I do not think fall is long for this world. And it would appear as though our front office agrees. Because, guys, big news. And it's big news from a bunch of reliable sources. LAFC have offered Juve legend and center back Giorgio Cellini a contract now here's the part that I think everyone's like oh Cellini uh, no one wants a DP it's not DP money it's apparently solely on an allocation deal and the first thing I think when I see this is I don't believe it who reported it and then I look down and I see oh the athletic has confirmed what Paul Tenorio and Sam's Detschko have reported. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, all right, well, hold up. Those are legit names. And it was getting retweeted and, and supported by a lot of very verifiable and honest accounts that the 37, soon to be 38-year-old center back could be joining us for as little as $1.65 million for potentially the end of this year and next season. So before we freak out, I'm pretty sure this rumor was started by Vince. But if I'm wrong and this rumor ends up being true, what do you guys think of Cellini and Juventus's finest center back coming over to the black and gold? I mean, if true, I am all for it. He, you know, storied defender. He's played in all kinds of backline schemes. And what I mean by that is, you know, three back, three man back line or two man back line, uh, both for the national team in Italy and for Juventus. So I think the experience that he would bring to the squad, I think the attention that the defenders would pay to him in terms of how to read different runs from players, how to position yourself, the kind of um, drive that it takes to be defensive and be proud of that. I think that's something that's very Italian at times. I think a defensive mindset. And uh, I think that aura is going to be massive in the, in, the, in the locker room. Yes, he's older, but I don't think he's ever really been that kind of fast defender, not a Ramos or Carlos Puyo or Van Dyke, where if you beat him, he's going to get back immediately. He's one of those players that he really understands and studies the, the, the forward and the attacker in front of him. And he can anticipate a lot of the things that he's going to do or the runs that the, the offense is going to make. 
and obviously on set pieces, he's deadly. And he's deadly also in terms of crushing offensive uh, attacks from corners or in, in, a, in a crossing situation. So I'm, I'm excited about it. I think this is maybe not the offensive kind of DP splash move that um, a lot of people want or expect, but it's a world-renowned name. And I think if you're really a student of the game and over the last decade, decade and a half, if you've been watching world football, Chiellini has been one of the best defenders uh, up there with, like I said, Ramos Puyol and some of the others that come to mind in, the, in my at least uh, adulthood. I'm be honest, right? Like I don't, I don't watch a lot of Serie A, right? And so I don't see a lot of Chiellini day in and day out and, and the, and the, and the highlight reels, but I, I mean, I know who he is and I know that I know that he is a center back that has played at the world stage at the highest levels. And I think that any, any one of that caliber is going to be able to contribute on this team in this squad. I'm just curious as to know what the depth chart would look like because at center back, we are, especially if, and when Eddie Segura comes back, like we're going to have a lot of depth at center back. And, and so then it's, Who's going to be the starting two and where is everyone going to fit in and, and how are you going to maintain players uh, from getting unhappy about their minutes? And, and those are the things that come to my mind when I see a big name player like this, because you obviously have to give him the respect and the time, like you're paying a significant amount of money for him to come. So, you know, he's going to get minutes. So then who does he play in lieu of? You know, Eddie Segura coming back by and large was someone that we all at this club think is our best center back that we have right now. You know, so you have Chiellini come in and play with Eddie Segura. So then Mamadou Fall and uh, Jesus David Maria are, are, are not playing, you know, and then people like uh, um, Ibiaga, not, he's not going to be playing much. I think that you then are, are moving people farther and farther down the depth chart. And that's, that's just when people might, might not be as happy. And so you, you want to try and keep the dynamic flowing and, and we're playing well, but could a player like this come in and solidify us, especially as we're going, if we get him in the summer transfer window. And as we make that push for an MLS cup, absolutely. And especially if we do play well and we do earn a Conca champions leagues position, could Chiellini help us next year when we're playing Conca champions league? Absolutely. Don't forget down to Henry. I'm going to interject because, like, why is this still a possibility and why is it possible? First of all, Italy's not going to the World Cup. So him coming in this summer doesn't affect him and his playing time. And I think he's not going to play in the following World Cup at his age. And then back to what Jonathan said, if if Mamadou Fall is catching a lot of attention and he has a red hot next month and a half, it could be one of these Dutch teams or Portuguese teams um, mid-table Premier League teams, Spanish team that comes in after him. And if he leaves, then it opens up a spot, right? And I think having an experienced center back is going to be important. Will we be as dynamic, especially from that position? Probably not. But then we have a former starter, you know, ramping up to come in and to take his place back. And then we have Murillo still coming back. And then we have a few others. I didn't expect him to start, I, th- I mean, Henry, he probably compete more than Ibiaga to be able to get some, some playing time. And then Chiellini, let's say at the end of the game, stalemate, right, in the playoffs. And if we can add him into set pieces, I think we have his other additional weapon 
that a lot of teams don't have in terms of experience closing out games and being able to get at the end of, of a set piece. So I don't think it's it's out of the question. I think it, next month and a half has a lot of things in flux for LAFC, despite the position we're in, the results. I mean, even Vela, like we're not even talking about that. Like, there's no stamp that he signed things, right? So it's, a lot of these things are important. So I just am happy that we're able to talk about LAFC. There's so many things that are in question and the team is still trending to be uh, kind of top two seeds to the end of the season. I think there are two things that this announcement says to me. One is that the imminent departure of Mamadou fall is far more imminent than we thought it would be. I think everyone thought, Oh, great. We got this 19 year old center back. We're going to get him until he's 21, 22 years old, and then sell him on. Well, he might've played himself into being sold on significantly sooner than that. And we might be looking at an imminent departure of fall. I also feel like Daniel Henry is one of those players that is currently on the cusp of the Canadian national team. And he needs minutes. And right now, with the way fall's playing, with Mario in front of him, with Ibiaga and Segura perennially six weeks away from being back, where are the minutes for Henry to earn his spot with the Maple Leafs? Right. It just it spells to me that there's going to be departures for him to be coming in. You know, we still got Tony Leone as well, too. I mean, there's there's depth there as well, too, on the Las Vegas side as well. So to me, I mean, the only reason Cellini would be coming in is if someone is going out. And to me, Fall and Henry, Henry, because he wants to earn himself a chance to to play for El Maple Tree. And, you know, and look, if someone came in right now and said, Here's $19 million for your 19-year-old fall. We're going to take that all day twice on Sunday, right? And I have a feeling there are teams right now that are looking at him going, great. He's advanced. He's moldable. We, you know, He's seen that he's taken direction from LAFC. Is he at the height of his game? No, but we want to be the one to mold him. We'll overpay now because you know we see that this could be a, a $30, $40 million player in a few years. And, and shoot, we'd better get him now while he's maybe in the $10 to $15 million camp, which is you know, probably even on a high side of what he would go for nowadays. But I mean, if you're looking at Mamadou fall right now and, and saying, maybe we get 10 mil for him, that's, that's good business for LAFC right now, especially if you only have to spend 1.6 to get a Cellini and to recover him. So, um, I mean, I'm sad because it means it, it, this probably means fall and Henry are out. And I have my reservations about a 37 year old center back. I know other people have voiced that online and, and taken a lot of heat for it. And I, like Chris, look, there are many things from Italy I love. Love the wine, love the food, don't love Italian soccer. I don't watch it. I, I don't care for it. It's not my cup of tea, right? Uh, I'm a Demanche fan, and I have no love for anything that's going on there on the peninsula. So, yeah, look, uh, I, I don't follow Juve at all. I don't watch any of their games, and I will be the first to admit that. But he's still a name, right? He's a big enough name that I know who we're talking about here. And, and you know, outside of a Euro or a World Cup, I pay very little attention to things going on in Italy and and have never, will never root for them. So, you know, all those things, he becomes black and gold. I, I just became a fan of my first Italian player. At Boozology, for any of those people that want to at Jonathan Reimer, at Boozology uh, on all social media handles for anyone who wants to uh, slide in those DMs and talk a bunch of trash. I didn't say that. I, I'm all for rooting for Italian soccer. I just don't watch it because I just don't have the time. But uh, <laughs> but no, I, it, either way, it's a good problem to have, right? This whole thing right now, 
it's a good problem to have. I mean, we'll just have to see. We'll have to see what happens when the dust settles. There still hasn't been the official, official, nothing has been signed. At this point, it's still all rumors. So we'll have to just wait to see what exactly happens when it transpires and we can go from there. And I'm sure everyone is really hoping we ask Will Kuntz about this. Uh, first of all, Will would never give us an answer about this. And we recorded the interview with Will and finished like four hours before this news dropped. So we unfortunately did not have this little tidbit to ask him about, as I know, I'm sure that's what everyone eagerly wants to hear us, but he would never have commented on something that's not a done deal anyway. So uh, unless you wanted to hear him artfully dodge a question, we would be chagrined for asking. Um, you're not going to get that from Will. But moving on, guys, a couple other bits and notes before here we get to our interview with Will here. So one and probably the biggest bit of news that's not really news, but it was really confirmed this week when virtually every club and league in the world put out a statement backing the new EA Sports FC. So FIFA, the game that has existed for 28 years, is going to see its 29th and final year next year. And then the legendary game FIFA will go away and be rebranded as EA Sports FC. There's going to be a lot of similarities to the FIFA game as a lot of those contracts will continue. We know that they've lost the rights to World Cup and some of the international stuff that was in the game but they are going to be adding some women's teams and supposedly LAFC will be Bank of California stadium and all the LAFC team in that 2024 inaugural edition of EA sports FC FIFA has partnered with a different company and are going to be releasing a competitive game that should be coming out around 2024, 2025 as well too. So what this means for EMLS and all the people throughout the world who fell in love with this game through FIFA, the game, which has probably done more to grow this sport at a youth level than any other single thing in the world. And the fact that the nearly three decade run of the most successful sports video game of all time is coming to an end. What impact is this going to have on the world of football, gentlemen? None. I don't think any. I think that they just took the game and they renamed it like EA Sports FC is still going to be the same thing as FIFA. It's going to have the same people working on developing it. They just literally renamed it. I think that EA Sports FC is it's going to be one of those things where people still call it FIFA, right? Like, hey, you want to play FIFA? But they they put in they put in the disc or they you know load up EA Sports FC. So the FIFA is going to release a new game, and they've already said they're going to call it FIFA. Wow. That, that name they own and that name is synonymous with the video game and whatever version they come out with to compete with EA Sports, it's going to be called well, FIFA. So EAFC, well, I, I don't know. Look, man, it's I mean, obviously, everybody knows EA Sports and trust them. It's in the game, right? I mean, from from Tiger Woods to all the other great games that they've had throughout the course of the years that have been an integral part of all our lives. I think people are loyal to EA Sports. But FIFA's pulling the World Cup from their platform, and, and some of the teams are going to be leaving. Uh, the majority of the big leagues and big teams are still going to be there, but I don't know, man. This is, that's what my comment is. Like, in the long run, it depends. It depends who retains licenses, image rights, et cetera, because I think what's going to happen is people gravitate to who has their favorite player, their favorite team, et cetera. Because I don't know if you guys ever play this, because I didn't really game much, but what I did game was football soccer games and back in the day i actually preferred pro evolution soccer pes 
because of the way the gaming was and the graphics. But EA Sports had all the teams and the players and the image rights. And then they caught up to the way the game played and the tactics and the difficulty, the shooting, the passing, etc. So then EA Sports and then FIFA took off. This was back in the college days. So Pro Evolution Soccer also over time stopped getting updates. I think Ronaldo was no longer Ronaldo. He was like at that point number seven for Manchester. And it wasn't Manchester United. It was like Manchester Red. So these things are going to, I feel, going to happen to EA Sports, right? There's going to be teams in different cities and different countries, but it's not going to be Manchester United. Real Madrid is going to be White Madrid versus Red and White Madrid, things like that. So in the long run, if the gaming side and the tactic side and the platform flexibility, Xbox, PlayStation, et cetera, et cetera, is able to keep up what FIFA becomes, that's going to be the, the game of choice. And then it's going to be FIFA was always number one choice anyway, because they retain the names to their own organization. Well said. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I think that there's always going to be people that want to play the game. And I think Christian made a good point that nobody really cares if the gameplay, because at this point in time with the way that graphics and technology has advanced so much in video games, like both of these games are going to look great. I would bet a whole paycheck that both of these games are going to look great, but it is, it's going to be, do I get to play as my team? Do I get to play as favorite player? Do I get to, you know, uh, go to tournaments and represent my club or whatever, whatever. So yeah, whatever, whichever one of these two ends up keeping the naming rights and licensing. But it's, you know, you already started to see this in FIFA. Like, I think it was Juventus, right? Like, wasn't in FIFA. So I think it has to do with this. I think they've been slowly extracting. I think, and to me, and I don't have like done a lot of research and this, this sparks this for me. I bet you a lot of the talent here in SoCal at EA Sports is being hired away probably to FIFA and whatever that gaming organization or gaming company is. So we'll see. I think it's Realm is the name of the company that has the new contract. I'm not 100% sure on that. I hope they just give an update to the Nintendo Switch, bro. They've been like, they, they just do these legacy ones or do where they update the uniforms, man, but the graphics are still terrible. That's what I want. I want an update on my Nintendo Switch so I can take that around with me. And uh, I'm not getting that. I just get these legacy editions over and over and over again. Yeah. All right, John. So what else not... do we have? What else do we have? I want to go talk to Will Koontz already. All right, real quick, just before we wrap up here, LAFC has partnered with Mix Halo, which is a new way for visually impaired fans to listen to the game in stadium. And I know, um, having been reached out to by a few fans that listen to the show, that we have some visually impaired LAFC fans that listen to this podcast. And I just wanted to let you know that Mix Halo is allowing you to have the radio broadcast in your ears while you're there at the bank so that you can hear the broadcast about what's happening while attending the game so that visually impaired people can still follow along with the game and be able to take in all of the excitement, but hear the broadcast while they're there, which I think is a fantastic development. And all I want to know is, can I get one earpiece of this in the North End so that I can pay attention to the game as well too? Chris, you had a thought on this? Yeah, I'm actually really excited about this. I personally really enjoy listening to Dave Denholm's commentary on the radio and you know it's kind of like an LA throwback right like people would listen to Vince Scully at Dodger Stadium all the time right so I I would personally like to have that same thing like I think the way that Dave talks about the broadcast during live is amazing unfortunately it's a huge delay like I, I tried it I had tried doing something like this back in 2019 downloading a radio app on my phone and trying to listen to Dave 
but there, you know there was like a 10 second delay and i was just like well forget this idea like this isn't gonna work i'm listening to dave talk about stuff that happened 10 seconds ago i just i looked into this a little bit it says it's supposed to be like a live broadcast so there isn't any of that delay i hope that's the case and if it is that's that's going to be exactly what i want i'd even looked into trying finding like an actual like am radio you know where you could just plug in with the signal and just listen that way and not have to use your phone but uh if this ends up meeting that i'm just going to listen to dave denholm every single game yeah shouts to double d we love him does a great job calling games even when there isn't a game he could just make it up in his head and it's still a great game shouts to faux traffico yeah go back and listen to that episode if you guys are interested to listen to our episode with david denholm that was back in geez 2020 that was that was after he that was during, during the COVID. pandemic when everything was yeah, shut down and he made up the fake game. Though. Yeah. Yeah. But that was a good one. Anyways, um, no, I'm excited for that. Last bit of news and notes, of course, scarves up for good. Please use that hashtag $1 every time that gets tweeted out goes to the Mofasio Memorial Futsal Court Foundation. We know the SGs are still trying to do whatever they can in order to raise money for that. There is a significant gap between the funds raised and the funds required in order to build that futsal court. So um, right there at the Northwest corner of the stadium, there's the giant scarf statue. You can go out there, take a picture, holding up your scarf next to it, hashtag it scarves up for good. And every single one of those tweets gets $1 donated to the Mofasio Memorial futsal court. All right, folks, with that, we are going to take a quick break and we will be right back with today's interview with the Senior Vice President of Football Operations and Assistant General Manager for your Los Angeles Football Club, Will Koontz. What's up, y'all? It's Sholo Mariduena, Miguel Diaz from Cobra Kai, and uh, you're listening to the Shoulder to Shoulder podcast. Joining us now is the Senior Vice President of Football Operations and Assistant General Manager for the Los Angeles Football Club, one of the architects of the black and gold. Folks, Will Kuntz is on Shoulder to Shoulder Podcast. Welcome, sir. Gentlemen, it's a pleasure to be here. Finally. Finally made it. Oh, man, it's been a long time coming. Will, thank you very much. We can't wait to get uh, the full scoop, full story, the behind the scenes of the Wonderkind. So, uh, you know, as we're just getting started, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us some of the early beginnings and how the beautiful game entered into your life. Yeah, so uh, from Brooklyn, New York, Originally born and raised, uh, played basketball, soccer, baseball, football, volleyball, growing up, kind of a lot of everything. But the beautiful game entered my life when I was, I think, 11 years old after fourth grade, went to a summer camp up in New Hampshire that was run by a guy out of D.C. who had a ton of international connections and basically knew all of these diplomats and international business people who were going to be in Washington, D.C., but needed something to do with their kids during the summer. So this camp up in New Hampshire, which was kind of run by a bunch of stoner counselor types who just play a lot of Frisbee and listen to fish, had the most stacked football team you've ever seen. Like the Ducre brothers, three brothers from Paris who were awesome. Like one was 16, one was 14, one was 12. You had the Ferrers from Spain, right? Just outside Madrid, Alvaro and, and Ignacio. You had kids from Portugal, kids from Brazil. It was just insane. Right. And, and I was very American. I was I was the big guy. Right. So you always put me in goal. And I was, I was a pretty good goalie because growing up in New York, you know, there's not a lot of great soccer players. All of a sudden you see kids can actually kick a ball and hit a ball. And you're like, oh, my gosh, this is wild. And that also happened to be 
1998, the World Cup in France, right? And the final went down when we were still in camp. We didn't have a TV there, but every time there was a game for the World Cup that one of the kids from the, you know, where a country that one of the kids was from was being played, they would put it up on a projector. You know, I'd go with these Brazilian kids or these French kids or these Spanish, and people would be losing their minds, like screaming at the TV. And, you know, I'm, I'm watching. I, I like sports, and I start asking some questions. Like, oh, this guy looks great on France. Where does he play? Oh, well, actually, he plays in Spain. Oh, cool. That's weird, but awesome, right? Well, how about this guy from Brazil? Like, Actually, he plays on the same team in Spain as the guy from France. And you're, you're like, wait, what? That doesn't really make a lot of sense. Um, but very quickly, it started to dawn on me how small the American sports landscape is. Right, Everything here is just so self-contained. But when uh, you, know, you see these guys from different countries and the passion that they're bringing and then like the, just the transactional piece of like guys from different countries playing in different countries. And then, you know, that was how I learned about Champions League. Right. And, and at that time, you still couldn't see a Champions League game on TV. But these guys would tell you, like, oh, man, it's the best. And you still can't kind of wrap your mind around it. But I definitely remember coming back in the summer of 98, just kind of thinking, like, yeah, things are different now. This is something that I want to kind of get involved in. And then, you know, right around then is when Fox Soccer Channel or Fox Sports World, whatever it was first, launches, right? And you get your very early tasting of Premier League. They had that Premier League review show or, or Fox Soccer show. And then I think a couple of years after that, all of a sudden the Champions League was on TV. Right. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is the thing that I this legendary tournament that I'd heard about. Right. Like we have to find a way to watch. It's the only time I ever cut school, uh, I swear. And all my time growing up, we left early because, you know, the game used to be on Wednesday, the Champions League final. And it was about two thirty in the afternoon on the East Coast. And so like we would sneak home, like we leave school early and like run to my parents place, which is like a half mile from school and watch, uh, you know, uh, the Champions League final. And the first one we watched was Madrid, Bayern Munich, right? With Solskjaer scores. And you're just like, this is, you know, it, again, it's like crazy, right? But that was sort of the, from that summer of 98 through that first Champions League game, it just, it made me realize how connected everything is, how big this game is, how cool it is. And then, you know, since then, it's like you go anywhere, right? If you want to make a connection with somebody, um, you can start talking about football in any country, in any, you know, anywhere. So, yeah, it's a, a long-winded way of, how I got my my start. Did you choose a team from that Champions League final? Trouble winners. It was an exciting yeah. match to, to kind I of didn't, watch. You know, I, I think I was, it was a little bit later that I kind of just gravitated towards Arsenal, like those Henri Brickham invincible teams. And you're just like, man, this is, and again, you know, the, the kind of mantra at the time was English football is just very direct, a bunch, <laughs> a bunch of, you know, wildebeest running up and down and watch your ankles and, you know, a lot of get stuck in type of mentality. But you watch the team and they got Dutch guys, French guys, uh, you know, just guys from all over the place. And they are playing at a really high level and playing really fun, attractive, you know, football. And I'll never forget, you know, my dad came down and he was, it was a review show, but it was an Arsenal game. It was a 15 minute distillation of a 90 minute game. And my, my father was just like, this is the most incredible soccer game I've ever seen. He's like, this is the best team of all time. This guy, Henry, is, he's like, this guy, Henry is incredible, right? Yeah, that was kind of my first uh team that I gravitated towards, but I, I don't think I have a team outside of LAFC, obviously. Okay, we'll take you as an Arsenal supporter. It's already cemented. It's done. We'll have you. Ooh, to be a gooner. I love to hear it. You know a little bit about the sporting world from being on the playing side and, and a champion, no less, I might add. Your NCAA basketball team, I mean, you, you went on to become a national champ. Tell us that story. So that was uh, my freshman year at Williams College. We had a really good team. It was actually one of the things that, that attracted me to the school. But 
Yeah, it was maybe the greatest three-day stretch of my life. We went to the the Final Four, the D3 Final Fours in Roanoke, Virginia, as it, as it was every year back then. It was, uh, our games were described by one of the Fox, it was the first time we were ever on like a regional broadcast and one of the Fox Sports commentators described it as a weekend of below-the-rim action-packed basketball, right? Uh, which, I, which I think was fair. I think there were probably like two dunks all weekend long in the three, in the three games of the Final Four. But, you know, we had a, uh, a really competitive group of guys. Uh, and it was a team that, uh, you know, I was a freshman, but we didn't graduate anybody the year before. So we had to just, uh, it, was, it was great for me to, to come into an environment. We had a lot of older guys who really cared, who wanted to go out on a high, who put in the work every day. And yeah, we went down uh, to Roanoke. We played final four game, I want to say on Thursday. The national championship game was on Saturday. And then I had my interview with the New York Yankees for my internship on Monday, right? So about as good. You know, win the national championship on, on a Saturday, get your internship with the Yankees on the Monday. It doesn't get much better than that. That's, that's a pretty good week. You're burying the lead there a little bit. How, how did that transition happen from, you know, championship weekend to, you know, launching pad to the next step in your life? Yeah, no, it, it's all uh, tied together for me. So because we had a really good team and we were division three, but we took it really seriously. And, and there's not a lot to do in Williamstown, Massachusetts anyway. I'm not sure if you guys have ever been, but you basically have to get lost and then keep going. You'll find Williamstown. There are more cows than people in the town. But uh, we weren't going out, right? And so it's the early start of the preseason. So it's these November days. And I'm, you know, I maybe weigh like 195 pounds. And these returning seniors are tossing me around like a ragdoll. So it's, I'm getting battered every day. I'm trying to stay on top of just the craziness of being a freshman. I'm trying to make sure I can get my rest and recover because I'm just, I'm just trying to survive like practice the next day. And so it's one night, it's a Friday night. Everybody in you know, the freshman class is going out. There's like a, a dance party here, stuff going on, and I'm you know, um, in season, so I'm staying in. And I was so bored that I think I was flipping through. No, not I think I was so bored that I was flipping through an alumni directory. Right? I don't know what, how, how bad it has to be for that point. But as I'm flipping through, I stumble on the fact that George Steinbrenner, you know, the late owner of the Yankees, is a Williams alum. I said, yeah, why not? You know, let me ask for an internship, right? I'll just write him a letter, write this long, cheesy letter. I, I grew up a Met fan, so I lied and said I was a Yankee fan. But other than that, everything was totally above board. And uh, I print out the letter, and I realized I'm not going to send this to George Steinbrenner at Yankee Stadium, because I imagine there's a mountain of stuff there. So I sent our school president an email, introduced myself, and just said, hey, I have this letter. Do you happen to have an address for Mr. Steinbrenner that's not just... George Steinbrenner, Yankee Stadium. He said, yeah, bring the letter to my office. Uh, I'd love to help you out. Sounds like a great idea. I know George a little bit, so I'll make sure it gets to him. The next week, I had a you know, couple calls and an email from the Yankees saying, when can you come in for an interview? And this is in November. And I said, well, you know, we're in season, so maybe whenever the season's over, right? Mid-February, something like that. And then, of course, we go into spring break in March, win the national championship, and then... Uh, I go in for internship. And when I go in, they basically say, hey, you know, Mr. Steinbrenner signed off on everything. So just tell us where you want to work. So I was like, I talk about talk about an alumni network, right? <laughs> Seriously. So I was like, if you're asking me, I'll go work for uh, you know, Brian Cashman and baseball operations. Right. And then um, it, the, the bad thing is now when people ask me, like, do you have any advice? And I'm just like, I got one move as alumni directory. And like, that's it. Like, if that doesn't work for you, I, I don't really have a lot, of, a lot to give you. But first of all, did Mr. Steinbrenner ever find out you were a Mets fan? No, 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 no. I didn't think that. <laughs> to be fair, I, I'm pretty sure he had no idea who I was 
after that. Um, I met him a couple times. He's introduced himself to me each time. So I was like, that, and that was the perfect place to be, right? Like, if he doesn't remember you, he can't be yelling at you. And that's, that's perfect. Great. So then the internship eventually led to the manager of pro scouting. And then you were also working on getting your law degree while, uh, while working for the Yankees, which ultimately then led into your, as the ML, you got hired by the MLS as the director of player relations. And uh, you helped, uh, you know, John Thornton, the current general manager, with the 2015 collective bargaining agreement uh, between the players and the league. So, you know, tell us a little bit about that relationship, what it was like working for the MLS. Why did you choose to come work for the MLS as opposed to trying to stay in baseball or look to a different league that you might have been familiar with, maybe like basketball, and what it was like working on the CBA? Yeah, so again, like everything in that question is is super interrelated. When I went from base operations, which is a little more administrative, transactional, you know, getting form signed, managing scouting reports, things like that. Um, like, and like when I say scouting, it's like giving the coaches the actual scouting reports and started baseball scouting proper. After my first spring training, I said to myself, there is zero chance I'll ever be able to make it as a talent evaluator in baseball. So you better have a backup. So that led me to apply to Fordham Law. I went to law school at night because I, well, I wanted to get the law degree. I didn't want to step back from the game, right? I knew I wanted to be working in professional sports. I said, it's so, it was so hard to get in um, and stay in that if I take a step back now, you know, there's no guarantee you'll ever get back in. And I actually found that when I was in law school, it made me a better scout, right? Sort of the way you think about, you know, a legal case, like the elements of a murder are the same way you, you kind of think about a player. It's not subject matter is different, but it's the same type of thing where you have a, a fact pattern or a collection of you know, tools in a player and you have a, a law that says, hey, these are the elements of the crime and you have a profile that says, he, these are the elements of a great first baseman or a great right winger or what have you. And you know, it, it kind of helps you move off of sitting on the fence, which I think is always the worst place to be as a scout. So um, I kind of kept at the scouting side and I was managing these scout seats at Yankee Stadium at the time. So when scouts from other teams would come in, I'd sit with them and kind of pick their brain um, you know, in the meal room. And then I had to like shut them off and be like, that's great. I have to run to class right now. Um, but by the end of law school, I was managing the pro scouting department and able to watch games, which was great, but it's a very difficult lifestyle. I think to be working in baseball, you know, it's 162 games in the regular season. There's seven weeks of preseason in Florida, Arizona. And, you know, it's like pick up, pack up the whole office. We're moving, right. We're going somewhere else. Um, and it got to a point where I said to myself, if I don't leave right now, I'm in baseball forever. And it's, it's great. Baseball is a sexy lifestyle. It's a lot of fun. You make good money, but you know, there was an aspect of the game. There, there were two things. I think one was that there's a, a saying in baseball that in any given season, you're going to lose 60 games. You're going to win 60 games. It's what you do with the other 40 that matter. Right. And, and that is basically true. But what the, the way in which it manifests itself is if you, if you lose a game, right. We're in a, in a, you give a game away or like a heartbreaking fashion or, or something like that happens. And, you know, the coaching staff be like, don't worry, we'll get them tomorrow. Right. There's another one. And that was always really hard for me to swallow where it's like, guys, we have to win every single game. Right. I know nobody wins 162 games, man. Like let's go all out. And then the, you know, the second piece of team building is that it's, it's relatively static in baseball, right? Like, there's not a lot of creativity. Like you're not going to take a right fielder and move him to third base, right? You're not going to take a second baseman and make him a catcher. There's still a lot that goes into it, right? It's not, I'm not saying it's easy, but when you put a team together or a roster together, it's sort of very kind of plug and play and, and you have to make sure you have your guys right. But you know, you need a guy for here and a guy for here and a guy for here. 
but it's never like your your third baseman makes your right fielder better, right? Or your or your right fielder and your first baseman have any kind of relationship. But when you think about how you put a football team together, right? Your right winger and your right back have a have to have a good relationship, right? Your your holding midfielder and your center backs have to have a good relationship, right? And you can take a guy who's playing, you know, I go back to the Henri example, right? Henri was playing out on the wing in Italy and, you know, Wenger sees, hey, this is a guy who I think has what we need. Like, yes, I see what he's doing out there wide, but he has what we need him to do centrally and we can play him up top. And so that level of creativity of a, of a football build always really appealed to me. And when I kind of got out of law school, I had my law degree and I was watching football on a Saturday morning Premier League with a, a good friend of mine from Brooklyn. And we were talking about what was happening in Toronto, right? So Tim Bezpachenko has just signed Michael Bradley and now you know, Josie's coming in and, or sorry, Jermaine Defoe had come in and I was asking my friend, like, you know, what is, what is this guy at Toronto doing, right? This is MLS, but these are, these are real guys. Like these are guys I know and they're, you know, they're coming here. And he's like, oh yeah, it's my buddy, Tim Bezpachenko. Who worked with me? My buddy worked for MLS. At the league. He was in the marketing side. I said, "Oh, that's my buddy Tim." Um, yeah, he was working at the league office until he took this job like two months ago. I was like, "Oh, well, what did he do at the league office?" And my friends said, "Well, you know, he managed contracts and he helped teams build their rosters and manage the salary budget." And I'm like, "Well, I, you know, I negotiate contracts for our minor league guys. I manage our, I help manage our salary budget. Like I, I do roster stuff. You know, he's, oh, he's got a law degree. It's like I just finished law school." I asked him, I was like, has anybody filled the role? They said, no, it's still open as far as I know. And so I said, all right, well, you know, can you throw my name in? And it was basically, hey, if I don't leave baseball right now, like I said before, I'm in it forever. But this football side has always really appealed to me. And then in that interview process, it, it became evident that they were looking for somebody to help them negotiate or work on the negotiation of the uh, CBA, collective bargaining agreement, which is expiring at the end of 2014. And so, you know, again, 30 years old, just out of law school, the chance to work on a CBA for a league office. I was like, this is, this is great. If I'm going to, if I'm going to leave the Yankees and, and I, you know, I, I'm not sure my, my father still understands it. Right? And I have uh, a lot of other people. My, I have a good friend, another friend from Brooklyn out here, whose father is like central casting neurotic New York Jew. And he's always just like, you're a schmuck. I can't believe you left. What a schmuck you are for leaving the Yankees. And he's been to LAFC games. He's like, this is really great, but you're still a schmuck. Right. But yeah, I was like, I was like, I have to do this. And I, you know, I, with the way I make decisions in my life, it's sort of like if I, there's been a few really pivotal decisions, but it's like, if I, if I don't do this, well, I look back and regret it. Right. And if, the worst thing for me is wondering what if, right. If I know I've made the wrong decision, that's fine. But if I think, oh man, what could it have been? And I said, yeah, this is something I want to do. And I went to the league office, you know, it was great to be on that side of it as far as learning how the league works. And then once the CBA process starts, you know, I'm, I'm coming in thinking I'm hot stuff and you know, I'm from baseball and I'm young and I'm a good athlete and you know, I'm in law school and like, I'm going to be the star of the show. And there's this guy on the other side of the table and he's just got like answers for everything. He's young. He's in way better shape than I am. He knows everybody, you know, like he's like, I'm just new in this room and he kind of knows the different parties and that's John Thornton, right? And these CBA negotiation processes are really contentious and it's, it's a long process. So it's a six month process where probably every other week, either we from the league office, you know, about four or five of us would take the Accela train down from New York to DC where the players union headquarters was, or the players union guys would come up to New York to visit us. And you kind of do this back and forth and you, and you come up and you, know, you, you give them a document. You're like, here's our, our latest draft. Right. And then they take it and they look at it and they're like, oh, this is terrible. Um, and they take it back and then 
you know, two weeks later, they'll come back with their draft, right? Or we go down and they give us their draft. And you kind of do this slow back and forth for about four and a half months. And then all of a sudden, the last six weeks, it starts going fast. And it gets, it gets hot, right? It all, like all of a sudden, these things that we weren't really talking about, we're kind of like, well, let's leave that for later, right? And it's always the big stuff. It's like salary budget, you know, travel, all this stuff. And then when it really ramps up, it gets quick. And, and these people that you've kind of been, you know, on the other side of the table with, but somewhat cordial, now it gets hot and heavy, right? And then the last week of the negotiation, you know, we're, we're a week away from the start of the season. There's no deal. We go to the Federal Mediation and Conciliatory Service Building. This is super inside baseball, and you guys can shut me off. This is too much. But, like, we have to go to the, the, this federal building in Washington, D.C., which is where every significant labor negotiation basically takes place, right? So the, you know, the Oakland port strike at the time was happening, and the FMCMS guys were managing that. And so we're now in Washington for a week, you know, and I'm with the owners and the commissioner and the, you know, uh, MLS president and down and, you know, the players, union. it's not just the, the association guys, but it's also now like the, the reps from every union reps from every team are there. Now, right. And you have this whole different dynamic and that was really hard, I think. And uh, that last week where like you're, you're, you're actually now looking across the table at these players whose livelihoods are being affected and, you know, you can tell how much it means to them. And again, I'm the new guy in the room, right? And, uh, you know, you learn a lot about a guy like, you learn about, about your, everybody in that scenario. But John, you know, I think was always really even keeled, really well considered, was never, you know, out of pocket or just, you know, going off. If he, if he stood on something, it's because he really believed it. But I definitely came away being like, oh, that guy, yeah, that John Sharp, like, you know, I'm sure he hates me because I'm on, uh, you know, team owner, team bad guy. And then about, you know, four or five months after that, he got named MLS GM and he actually came to the MLS league office for an onboarding process. And he sat, you know, one of the things that he was doing was to sort of talk to me about how he'd build out, you know, a salary budget, you know, how you build your roster, how would you set up your scouting network? And we had really good conversations for about, you know, five days in, in the office. We even put together a charter pro a charter travel plan that the league eventually adopted after COVID. And then John went back to LA and about three months after that, he called and said, Hey, uh, you know, we're building this thing based on our talks. Like, would you have interest in, in coming to help me do this? And yeah. That was an opportunity. I was like, yeah, a hundred percent. Right. In the meantime, Richard Roscoe had come by the office randomly with somebody in the marketing department and like, you know, Rich like came in like a bat out of hell. And I had no idea this was, it was like a Tuesday. And Rich comes in, he's like, hey, man, what's going on? Check out this hat. I'm like, oh, that's actually badass. And then, um, you know, he just starts telling me, he throws, it's Rich. He throws a lot of stuff at me in five minutes in my office. There you go. And then, you know, then he's out. And I'm like, I don't know what that was, but I was like, they got something going on, right? I had the hat in my uh, MLS office, right, at, at 425th Avenue. And, you, you know, I've got my Man U thing. I've got my Boca Juniors jersey. I've got all this stuff. And the thing that people would comment about when they came in after that for months was, like, the LAFC hat. Like, what's that? That's awesome. So again, yeah, long-winded answer, but that is uh, kind of how John and I got started. And it was a really good way, you know, like it's a pressure-tested environment, right? And you, you kind of learn what guys are like in a foxhole and, you know, not just will he fight, but will he fight for his guys? And will he stand up for what's right? Because, you know, that's on the, the league side of it, you want to put a lot of pressure on on the, the executive council of the union, right? You want to kind of say, hey, you guys are the decision makers. Can you guys just reason with us? And John was always very, very good about saying, hey, like, I'm here to represent the whole base, right? You're not just, you're not talking to me. Like I am the proxy by which you talk to everybody. So 
if you're asking me, hey, John Thornton, what do I think? Like, you, I'm really one five hundredth, one six hundredth of of the player pool. So, but this relationship that starts in an adversarial form eventually becomes the collaborative form. You start with LAFC. So take us through that season one roster build. Like what were the priorities? What was the philosophy with regard to scouting and recruiting? And when was that moment when the pieces were all put together and you finally realized that you had created something really special that was above and beyond what a normal expansion team expects to be? Yeah, I think the greatest thing that we had was enough direction from ownership. It was direction and latitude right i think that was the key thing and we had owners who said we really want to introduce ourselves to the city in a positive way right it's really important that we not that we be the best team but that we be emblematic of la right and and i'm a new york guy right so i i'll admit like i think of you kind of think of la as hollywood or you know the kind of early 90s South Central, you know, I was a big hip hop fan growing up. So, you know, NWA, Snoop, um, Death Row Records, all of that. And our owners were like, yeah, like black and gold, right? LA is glitzy in Hollywood, but it's also tough, right? It's, there are hard people here and not like in a bad way, but it's just like, you gotta, you gotta hustle in the city. Just like you gotta hustle in the, the weather's nicer, but you know, we have to represent the city. I think that was the, that was the mantra, represent the city. And, you know, Peter Goober, our, our visionary owner was like, don't get blown out. He's like, I don't care if you lose 5-4. I don't care if you lose 5-3, right? Just don't get blown out. He's like, we don't have to win every game. He's like, it'd be good if you score some goals. And that I think is, is really it, right? So we, we go about, hey, let's, let's find a team that, or let's, let's see if we can find guys that are good, can press, can, can play an attractive style. And then, you know, I think, like I said before, we were, or maybe this was before we started, recording but i we came into the league at the at a really good time right so you had more money than there had ever been before and you know one of the things that john and i were always very aligned about was like, let's not just be a club that is taking older guys who have been successful in europe and bringing them here right like how can we differentiate ourselves what if we could be a club that gets good young players from south and central america or you know western africa have them come here and then develop them into Champions League caliber players, right? I think it's really important that we be able to show the world that you know, we are a part of the ecosystem, right? We're not this removed, isolated MLS experiment, that we are a vehicle by which you can kind of develop players. And that was, that's how you get a Diego Rossi, right? That's how you get Edward Atuesta. And then, uh, you know, in the managerial candidate search, you, you, know, you talk to a lot of different people and you, you, know, you get kind of seduced or really entranced by these different international backgrounds but then you know when it comes down to it and you got bob bradley and you're like man this guy knows the league he knows the american market his international experience as a manager is unparalleled for an american i mean you know u.s national team egyptian national team which is like i mean just a whole other thing right stabek lahab swansea he there's nobody you could find who has been more ingrained in the international market and also has a real understanding of mls right and how this league works and you know then you bring in bob and bob has the ability to sort of really kind of paint the picture of what he wants right so he when he says i want speed on the width i want wide attackers and guys who can run and be versatile that turns into diego rossi right and then you start to and obviously carlos vela who when i started the league office was like moby dick right like everybody was like oh my god if we could ever get vela here and, and this whole thing he was like this unicorn and you know we were able to to get him and and 
again, I'm coming from a basketball player who's been working baseball for a long time, then the league office, which is like the country club, because you're not really competing. And all of a sudden you get here and, and we were doing our first preseason at UCLA because our training facility, the performance center wasn't up yet. So you're at UCLA in these kind of temporary locker rooms. You don't know, you know everything is coming together very quickly, but you watch this first training session. You're like, this, this is pretty good. And you're watching Diego Rossi do finishing with Ante Razov after, after training, right? And it's top ends, top ends, bottom left, bottom right, like sniping stuff. You know, you're, you're watching Latif Blessing. You're like, how did we get this guy in the expansion draft? You know, right? Like, how, how, how do you leave this guy protected? And then you start to see, and I remember I called my same friend at the league office who I was watching, you know, those football games with, you know, whatever it was, four years before when I first got the idea to work at MLS. And I was like, I don't know, man. I was like, I think we're pretty good. You know, I was like, I, I really do. I was like, I'm not just gassing us up. I was like, I could be wrong because I've, I've never done this before. I was like, this seems pretty good. And then, um, you know, John and I were in Seattle for that first game, March 4th in 2018. And, you know, I just remember like the, you know, Latif has that header off the, off the post early. Um, where he's like wide open. Like, oh man, like, you know, was that going to be our chance? Right. Like, are we going to rue missing that? Cause in, you know, Seattle was a juggernaut. We were very good. And then whatever it was eight minutes later, like, Carlos Megs, Roman Torres, and Diego Curls in that shot from deep. And I was like, okay, like this is this is real. Uh, and that was really exciting. You know, and, and I don't know that I thought then, like, oh my God, we're gonna light everything on fire. But that's when you really started to know. So, you know, between just everything kind of coming together at UCLA and you're like, and, and it was UCLA was like we had these kind of like there were these three big classrooms that could be, you know, collapsed into single rooms or combined into one giant room. And that's where we did our film session. And we had this incredible catering company that had these super nutritious meals and healthy meals in the back but it's, it's a student center right so you just have like random kids walking into the middle of the back room like oh check out this awesome like food in the back while bob's trying to get a scouting report you know um and you have no idea how it's gonna come together and all of a sudden boom uh, we roll it out and it's uh it's better than we could ever hope for and then you know we're on the road for a little bit but man you come back at the end of the month to the bank and that game against seattle and that atmosphere and everything jumps up a notch. Like if you thought it was good, like you come back here and you're like, Oh, this is, this is it. And this is, this is the thing. So leading up to those few, like first few games you're mentioning, I think, you know, LAFC supporters don't understand how lucky we are to have you and John Thornton working on the CBA. I think the machinations of knowing GAM, TAM, being able to build a roster, having the ability to mix in experience with young talent, like you mentioned, and having the maximum amount of money and then having willing owners to be able to invest and believe in something in LA. It's super interesting to me. It fascinates me too that you're very casual about it, but it's to me, it's like lightning in a bottle because there is a kind of cornerstones, this ownership that believes in the city and this product. There's also the supporters that were there before there was anyone named, you know, bringing that heat, that grit that you're mentioning, that glitz and glamour, but with with kind of that street flair and heartbeat of the team. But then having the front office, knowing what to do in terms of being able to actually execute on these contracts and bringing, you know, veterans, young players, and then being able to to have a successful first match ever and then first home match. I think it's something that cannot be overlooked. I think you're being very modest in the way you're responding to these questions, in my opinion. No, listen, I, and, and don't worry, I love me some me. So like, it's, uh, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, shirk a chance to, to self-promote, but 
when you have the 3250 from game one, right? Like when you're in Los Angeles, like that makes it easier. I'll tell you when I was in the league office, one of the things I would do is I would take meetings with agents from different parts of the world. Right? And it's always the same. They come in, they're like, my client really wants to go to MLS. He wants to go to New York, LA, or maybe what's happening in Miami. Right. But the, the fan base we have, and I remember those, you know, I don't know if you guys ever in those like Nikki's sports meetups, like back in 2017. Right? And, and when I got to LA, right. So 2017 in March, 2017, nobody knew LAFC. I was like, oh, I'm here to work for a soccer team. Oh, you mean the Galaxy? Like, no, it's a new soccer team, right? Like you wear a, you wear a, our gear around. You're like, oh, is that like a, like a minor league like American football team? Like, no, it's a new team that's coming. And you're like, oh, I think this is a little more uphill sledding than maybe I thought it was going to be. And then, you you know, we'd go to these supporters meetups, you know, like 1,000 people, like 500 people here. And they're all chanting, singing songs and, and together. So like, you know, I'd love to take some credit, but you've got the city, which is incredible. You've got our fan base, which is incredible. The stadium atmosphere, right? Like when, when we were talking to Ilya in this past off season, right? Like it meant a lot to him, right? Like he wanted, it's funny, the, the one thing that Ilya kind of pushed back on when we were like recruiting, it was just like, guys, I don't understand why it took you so long to come talk to me, right? It's like, um, but it was like, he wanted to be a part of it so badly, right? Like it's, and that's not because of the job that John and I or, or Bob and, and the other staff members did it. I mean, it, that's some of it, but man, like our stadium environment is special, right? And I challenge anybody to go a lot of different places and find something like that. So if it's if it's modest, it's just because like I think it's there are so many other factors that make it that put us in a great positions for success at this club. That's awesome. Like that's as a as somebody who does what I do, that's all you can ever ask for, right? Is a chance for is a chance to win. And I think also the knowledge that you will be held accountable if, if we don't put up, right? Because I think that maybe the worst thing to do is, is to be in a place where people are sort of apathetic, right? Or not too concerned, or they're just like, well, you know, we'll, we'll make the playoffs at MLS, right? No, like we want, we want trophies, right? We want to put the cabin in, we want supporter shields, we want MLS cups, we want open cups, right? We want champions leagues. Like, I think that's something that maybe not everybody gets energized by, but man, that's the thing for me. And so I think our club is really unique in that regard. And, you know, you mentioned also the MLSness of it all. I do think, there's real value in knowing this league. I, uh, when I talk to people from outside this league, I try and compare it to like Formula One, right? And I think now everybody's watching Formula One. Everybody knows, you know, all the different drivers and different cars and manufacturers. But imagine taking like Lewis Hamilton, right? Or Vettel or any of these guys. And it's like, okay, well, if you know Formula One, and that's international soccer or football, but you're going to come to MLS, right? So we're going to take your Formula One car and then we're going to bring you here, but it, it's going to be like kind of like a go-kart in relation to the spending, like, like what you guys spent in your car there. It's going to be a go-kart here. And like, I know you had four really good wheels in Formula One, but like you're going to have three really good wheels here, but the fourth wheel is going to be terrible, right? Or, or not great, or, or there's going to be a problem with it, right? And if you get too far ahead in the race, you know, one of the carnies who runs the go-kart track is going to come out and like kick your car and make sure that the rest of the pack can catch up, right? And like, that's, that's kind of like the analogy. So I think it's actually a lot harder to, to be successful here, right? Because the, being the best driver, this is a terrible analogy, but being that best driver is not going to help you necessarily succeed here because it, there's so much more that goes into it, right? And to be fair, like, it's not like we got everything right off the bat, right? Like there are a lot of learnings that we probably could have made in 2018 that we didn't make till maybe this past off season. And, and I'm sure there are still some that I'm not thinking of. But. Well, but like you say, though, you know, you, you look at complete packages, right? The stadium. The stadium is great for the in-person entertainment, but it's also great for the player. You know, players want to come and play for LAFC because of the support and the supporter section and just the atmosphere. You know, you talked about working a roster and instead of taking players that have 
are veterans in the global game. You're taking these new players that are hungry and that you, and as a fan, I think the culmination of when we finally get to see, you know, a dozen players or so that have, have at one point in their career worn the LAC crest and are now playing in international tournaments and, and playing in the top league in the world. I think that that's going to be one of those things where you look and, and it's going to be pride and you're going to like, people still continue to watch Diego Rossi's career and see how he is doing at Fenerbahce because it's like, Hey, he was one of us and we want to see him do well. And so, you know, 10 years down the line or what have you, when we see, you know, these players that have moved on and are going on to bigger and better things, it's that full thing, that full package. So if you aren't able to bring the championships every single year, like some, in other leagues, how there are those dominance, those Byrons, the the cities. It's the complete package that you're selling to the fan base. It's not. It's not just hey, we are you know uh, providing solely championships. Right, that's the mandate, right? Like we we have to hold ourselves to a, a standard that I, I don't want this to sound like I'm being pretentious, but like we are trying to hold ourselves to a standard that MLS itself does not require you to be held to, right? And that's just a a factor. I think you know take any international league, right? The, the team in first place at the end of the season in almost every league in the world is your champion, right? You play every team home and away and the points are the points. At the end of the year, that's the table. In our league, being one of the best 14 teams gives you a chance to win the championship, right? And I think there are some teams that orient themselves and calibrate themselves to be among that top 14, right? And I don't mean to cast dispersions on anybody, but there's no way that being like, yeah, we're 14, right? That's, that's good enough, right? Yes, and we might sneak into playoffs, but I think if we did that, nobody would be happy, right? We, we are not trying to be 14th. We're not trying to be 10th. We're not trying to be 7th, right? We want to be first. That's really important, right? And, and just because the league does not prioritize that, we don't think that it's not a priority, right? And, and that makes it a little bit harder, right? Because I think there is a temptation to say, well, let's just, let's back off, right? Ante Razov was an assistant coach for Seattle, and he, he says all the time, he's like, when we won in 2016 in august we were in last place right? and that was okay with us we knew who we were and what we wanted to be and that's how they you know they made their run late uh, and i i think there's probably a world in which you could say yeah if we gave up points if we if we sacrificed games or, or rested guys early then maybe we'd be you know optimized in um, october maybe but that's that's never going to be the way we are and right? i think that's i think that's great yeah i think that's that's exactly what everyone who supports this club wants from this club. So you kind of touched on, you know, the learning moments that you've had over the course of this build with LAFC. So, you know, take us through how your roster control has evolved over the course of the past five years from the mentality you had in building the initial squad to the mentality you took, say, into this last off season when we saw what appeared on the outside to be a very different approach to rebuilding the squad this time around. I think it's always... A learning process, right? And if you're not learning, then you're not doing your job right. One thing I think we've always that, that has been an underpinning of the way we built our rosters and it continues to be is flexibility. Right. Like because our our spend is so restricted, it's really valuable to have guys who can do multiple things. Right. And I think, you know, historically, whether that was, you know, a guy like Tristan Blackman who could play right back or center back, or a guy like Diego who could play out wide or centrally in the attack, that's really bought us a lot of cover. And I think it's really important, right? And this year, that extends to a guy like Ryan Hollings had play on the right or the left, right? I think that's, um, you know, if, if you have a, a guy who can back up at either position or, or start either position, to be clear, that means when you get a million dollar offer for Muan Kim, 
yeah, you know what? It, it does leave us a little bit stretched, but it's not like we're out a right back. We have covered that right now. We have three guys for four sort of traditional depth spots, but um, that versatility lets you be more flexible. So that's something we've always, I think, valued. I think something we got away from that we recognized in the last year was having a few more veterans in the, in the regular squad, right? I think MLS experience is really important. And, uh, you know, that first year we had Jordan Harvey and, and Stephen Badishore, right? We got them through free agency. We had traded for Benny Failhaber. We traded for Walkerson. We had, we got Lee Wynn later in the year. Like we had experience, but we didn't actually think about it like that. Like it's all kind of coming together. And then over time is you know, Beta left and, and Benny and Lee and all these guys leave. And, you know, we had a good squad, right? So like, we're bringing in Brian Rodriguez, which is awesome, right? You're bringing in uh, Sifu and Chiqui Palacios and Pancho. And, um, you know, we're excited about what we're doing, but there's no denying that we got away from that veteran piece and uh, that veteran um, core, right? That that was a really big piece of what we were trying to, uh, or what we had. And and I do think that COVID in 2020 played a little bit of a role in that because that was a really big year for some of our guys to move on. And I think when the international market got chilled and the world shut down, you know, I think that year you could have seen realistically, like Diego was uh, going to make a move to Europe. Edward probably would have made a move to Europe. And uh, when that didn't happen, guys uh, kind of chafed a little bit. And it's also like, that's a really traumatic experience for all of us, right? But to be a really young team at that time and to not have older guys who've been around the league or um, had just been playing for a long time, right? Who can kind of provide uh, stability and consistency in a locker room, I, I think is really valuable, right? And so this past off season, one of the things that we really set out to do was, you know, continue to build a squad that is deep and flexible, but we absolutely need to add some MLS veteran experience, right? I think when you look at all the teams that sort of had success in the league, they have that. Um, if you want to be a team that gets young players from other parts of the world, it's actually even more important, right? Because this league is more different than anything else, right? If you're used to, you know, pressure to deliver results every week in whatever country you're from, and then you come here and maybe you don't have that, right? So like, how do you keep that pressure from yourself, right? If, if you go from sort of like, I'm terrified of losing to doesn't really matter if we drop one game because of all these other factors, right? Like it's those veteran guys who've been around who know the league can kind of keep that group together. And so that's one thing I think has been a major takeaway from us. And, and I think we are seeing, I don't, it's only a quarter of the way through the season, but I think we can all see a mentality change in this group. And I think a lot of that is owed to the fact that we just have more grownups in the room, right? And because we are a club that's also going to always look to invest aggressively in young up and coming talent, having those grownups, those role models, those consistent presences is all the more important. So one of the other really big changes that happened this offseason, for the first time in the history of LAFC, we had a change at gaffership. So we have Bob Bradley, as you previously discussed, a historic coach, someone who had succeeded at so many levels and had experience in virtually every corner of the world of football. And yet in his replacement, we have someone who had very, very little coaching experience. And it was a decision that many people at the onset were up in arms about. Now, obviously, the decision has worked out swimmingly so far, and Dolo looks legit as the new gaffer for LAFC. But take us through that process and the faith and trust you placed in Steve and bringing in this new guy that is of a completely different model than the previous LAFC gaffer. Yeah, so I, I think it has to start just like 
when you're talking about players, right? It starts with what are we looking for? What is important for us? Who do we want to be? And so we wanted to find somebody who could maintain our way of playing, right? Our organizational philosophy about playing ball dominant, attacking football, pressing, right? When we lose the ball, we want to step up. We want to be aggressive. We want to dictate the terms of the game, you know, score beautiful goals and, and be relentless, right? And so there are a lot of different candidates who are interested in the job and there's, you know, it's a whole world out there of people you can talk to. But, you know, when, when we say, hey, like we need somebody who can keep what we have going, add to it and maybe find ways to get, more is the wrong word, but like, you know, get different contributions from, from guys who have been here for a while. And so I think with Steve, you know, people forget like he was the lights coach last year and that wasn't a great, record that they had but um, he had been in this environment right so he knew and obviously he'd played for bob but also just being around the performance center every day and talking to bob and hearing his thoughts on training and how we set up like that was i think very valuable i think what was really important to us is like we need somebody who can help us keep playing the way we want to play um, ideally we want somebody who's got a international contact base because of again because of the way we like to build our roster young players who want to move on important to have those connections we want to have somebody who can help we want somebody who can relate to younger players because right? that's really important i think in this age you know this i, I hate to use the word millennial or whatever is post-millennial but a younger generation that grows up on their phone and social media just they have a very different way of playing the game than an, an approach to being a professional athlete than i think maybe the older generations right whereas a lot of times fear-based or sink or swim or like you know do or die and again when we have our criteria of what do we need you know, and you go through and you're like, yeah, Steve checks all these boxes. There are other managers we spoke to who checked a lot of boxes too, but you know, we knew what we had in Steve. We knew that he understood what we were trying to do. We knew that he had the ability to coach in the way that we wanted. And so we had a very high degree of confidence in Steve, you know, and I think even if it hadn't gone well, so it's, it's gone great, right. For uh, this first stretch, but even if the results weren't there, you know, I, we would still have faith in Steve, right. Because of his demeanor, because of his approach, because of his experience. I mean, I, Three World Cups, and I mean, the guys from San Diego went to Germany at like 19 and just stayed there, right? Just like, it's like a legend over there. And, and he, you know, he's seen a lot. He's played against Messi. He's played against Neymar. He's played in the, on the biggest stage imaginable, right? And keeps a really even temperament. And so, and, and has good ideas, has really, he really jumped into the coaching when he stopped playing uh, in Germany and really involved himself. And it's funny, like John and I would say a lot, it's like, I, even with our players, like, do people know how good this guy is? Like what a beast he was and like what he has done. Like it's in some ways, I think of the fact that like he played for the U S like it's like a knock against him for some reason, but man, like with just the skill set, like, and all the things you're talking about, Bob, like international experience, knowing the league, all this stuff. Steve never played in the league, but he, he knows everybody who has, like he's been, you know, he's been so adjacent to it. And so it's, it's just really funny to us sometimes that people think it's like such a, it was like such a gutsy move or such a big call. It's like, like what are you gonna do like imagine bringing Mourinho here like in some ways like Mourinho is a better like name or a fit but like my gosh like that you're setting yourself up for disaster and and when you really do the work and look at like what do we need and, and what's out there it's I just think it's funny like I, I can't believe people would ever be like man Steve's not the guy 
for me, he's like the complete package. Another key acquisition that I think has also kind of flown a little bit under the radar was uh, acquiring Marco Garces, uh, who is filling a new role as the director of football operations. Can you talk about that hire and, you know, the vision that you guys have and how you feel like he is going to fit in the dynamic between you and John, especially when it comes to things like trying to prepare the next generation of LAFC player from our academy and from the, from, you know, pulling players here in the Los Angeles area. No, like I'll, I'll be honest, right. When John was like, Hey, you know, I'm talking to Marco and I want you to talk to him and kind of feel him out. And I think he's going to be involved in scouting. And this and I was like, are you, are you lining up my replacement? Bro, like what's what's happening here? Like, and I was a little on guard. And then I talked to Marco, and maybe after like, I'm not kidding, like 45 seconds, I was like, yo, like get this guy, like whatever it takes, like this is the dude. And you know, Marco, you know what he did at Pachuca, right? He came in and took a club that was in a a difficult spot and really committed to developing young players, playing young players, creating a different creating a different club, a different mentality, a different ethos. And when you look at our academy, right? Like we, we did something that's a little atypical where we started most MLS teams, expansion teams, just co-opt an existing youth academy, right? So Los Angeles youth FC, like we're just going to take you guys over and slap an LAFC badge on you. And, and your 18 year old kids are now our 18 year old academy products, right? And I think the thing you saw with LAFC is we took a different approach. We said, all right, this group of 04s, um, guys born in 2004, when they were 12 years old, we said, you guys are going to be our first academy class and you're going to be our oldest academy class forever, right? So when those kids aged up each year, we would just build a new team on top of it, right? So we had that U12 team that first year, then we had the U14 team, um, you know, and then as those guys aged up, we, we built the structure on top of it. We are now at a point where we finally have a full-fledged academy from, you know, the U 10 space through the first team, right? When you go all the way up to U17s, 19s, now USL, Las Vegas, it's the first team. And so it's the perfect time to bring a guy like, you know, Marco in. And then when you talk to Marco, I mean, again, a guy who played in the League of Max, but then went to study in Liverpool, work with Sir Alex Ferguson in Manchester United. You know, he was a guy who helped bring Chicharito to Man United. Then went to Pachuca. He has been in, you know, he has been all over the world. He's in constant communication with a lot of people, but he's just, he's a, a rat. He loves the game. He loves you know, the academy set up here in the U.S. He appreciates the differences between here and Mexico. He's seen in a lot of different places. Um, I'll tell you, that that's a guy, like, way more interested in talking to than me. Like, you guys uh, are looking for people in the future. Like, Mark was great. But, you know, what he can bring is only going to make us better, right? And I think, you know, we're starting to see some recruits now in the academy. And, and one of the things that was awesome that Marco did was just, when he came in, he set up, uh, we're still working on the name. My name would be Flight School. Uh, John likes Academy Plus. But every Wednesday now, we have uh, the top players for our academy at different levels and some top kids from unaffiliated local clubs come and train, right? And the, the first team coaches will run a session or Jordan Harvey will run a session with these young kids. And it's a way now to get our academy guys all together. It's not just the, you know, it's not just the 17s, right? It's the 15s and they're getting in front of coaches. And now you've got like guys like Ilya Sanchez stays and watches I'll call it flight school. He watches flight school every Wednesday, right? Like he's just there and he wants to see these kids train. Um, and you gotta, you gotta let me know when I can bring my, my oldest son uh, to that, to the flight school, man. He's, he's only seven, but uh, you know, he might get <laughs> a couple of years. He might get old enough. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and Ilya came up in Barcelona, right. And La Masia, it, you know, they have a, a culture of, you know, it's not just, 
the first team, right? It's the club, it's the academy, it's everybody. And so, you know, Marco comes in and immediately he's, he's engaging with the academy coaches in a real way. And, and like I said, he's a rat. He just loves it, right? And so you know, he makes us better. He connects more dots. He's gotten experience. I think he understands the opportunity that we have here um, and understands that we still can even do a little bit more with it. So, yeah, like I, I think as far as how he fits into the mix, like he, he it's been seamless, right? And uh, aside from like him having to learn MLS rules, that's been really tough and uh, I don't begrudge him that like it'd be hard for anybody, but uh, yeah, Marco's great. He's like I said, super connected, super passionate uh, and he is going to make a huge, huge difference. I think uh, in the number of young LAFC players that we see from our Academy participating in uh, professional games in the next few years. He's complimentary on the infrastructure of the youth game, but now that we, we all know there's a third DP spot is he kind of, part of that three-headed monster at the table that's going to be making decision process. What do we expect in terms of position, you know, attacking midfield back? Uh, I know that you know, this is asked all the time. Usually the question is answered with attacking, but I feel like you, JT, and Marco think outside the box and, you know, might throw us a curveball, or it can be someone that uh, can play in two, three different positions, and we don't know. Yes. Yeah, so, I, I mean, I, you know, on the pod last week, I think you guys were talking about the, the event we had and how I said attacker and, and, and listen to you guys break down like what you thought that might be. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. So I don't want to I don't want to give you guys too much because I think you guys have more uh, um, creativity in there uh, that can blossom without me saying anything. But I, I think uh, to answer your question, for sure, Marco will be heavily involved. And, and he has to be. I think it's not a three-headed monster, though. I think it's a seven to nine-headed monster in the way that we do things, right? I think one of the, the great things about us is that we are very open, right? Like, we are not an organization that's going to force a player in a coaching staff. Uh, we're not an organization that's going to let a coach say, hey, it has to be my guy. But we care what everybody thinks. And, and we've had some of our coaches who come from different places come to us and say, man, like, I've been to other places in MLS. And I've been asked more in the first two months of being here about players and have been more involved than I was in the last, you know, three years at different clubs. Right. And I think that's really one of the greatest things about this organization. The way we operate is that we are, we are totally open and I don't care if it comes from you, Christian, I don't care if it comes from you, Chris, if it comes from you, John, like if it makes us better, then that's all we need to care about. Like that's the only thing that matters. And so, you know, Marco's got a, a really good eye. He's got a very good process and, Again, in these things when you're scouting, it's, it's like more people can kind of just challenge your beliefs, like challenge your assertions be, and are willing to be challenged. It just makes us all the much, all the more better. Would it be fair to say that this kind of nine person committee, you're all open to being brought a prospect, you know, depending on the criteria that, that's on the table for the DP that you all know of. And then you have a discussion, watch tape, and then kind of go up and down. And then it goes into the machinations of, negotiating, talking to the agent and seeing if it's, you know, something that can happen, their transfer window aligns with ours, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. It's on that side of it. It's always a little unique, right? What the player situation is. So even now, you know, this window just closed, but there are some players where sometimes you can get a deal. Um, if a guy's in Europe, for example, and his club is not going to be in the top, like, or, you know, let's say they're competing for a top four space, which maybe means, you know, Europe, right. Top four position. And they'll say, okay, if we're still in, if we can still qualify for Europe, when your transfer window is closing, then I'll come in the summer, right? If we have qualified or we can't qualify, then I'll come now, right? There's sort of a timing aspect that makes everything unique. And then there's also the MLS rules inside the budget, right? So the, 
the way we try and do it is to simplify and say, hey, basically we have this much to spend for this position. We have this much to spend for this position and we have this much to spend for this position, right? And here are the names that we're talking about within this band. Let's, let's make sure we sort of feel good about the players first. And then maybe if we take a cheaper guy here, then you, know, you can spend a little more in somewhere else. But it's, it's always a fluid conversation. And it's football, right? There's always new people, you know, like what I, like what I was talking to Marco today and, and saying that scouting is sort of like, we are always standing on quicksand, right? Like we know that what we see today is not necessarily what's gonna be what we see on Thursday, right? And um, we're always reacting, but we just try and make sure that we have as uh, uniform a sense of what we're looking for and that everybody feels like they can be heard. And I think that's the, um, the big challenge. And I think I've avoided answering what position we'd be targeting. Well, but no, I, like I said in our, our sponsor event, you know, our, our focus is on an attacking piece. I wouldn't say like positionally what that means. I would, I would go back to what I said earlier and say we, we prioritize versatility. Right? So I think what's going to be really important is that it's it's not just going to be a guy probably who plays in one position. You know, I think it's going to have to be, it's, it's a hallmark of how we play, right? Even with Dio, right? You have Dio, Diego, Carlos, guys who can be in, in all three spots at any given time, right? And I think that not having played the game, but if you're a defender, right? And you're like, man, is this Carlos Vela or Dio or Rossi that I have to deal with at any given time? Like that's three very different dragons, you know, but they're, they'll, they'll all get you. And, you know, there's also versatility within our attacking, with the attacking piece right now to, to move guys around, right? So I, I think that's something that there's a lot of leeway within the idea of attacking player. And I think the other thing is, and I heard you guys talking about last week, attacking player is the most expensive. Like it or hate it, MLS, you got your DPs. Those are three magic bullets, right? And if you if you know that these positions are really expensive, it's it's very difficult to find you know lethal attackers for cheap, right? It's the most expensive position out there. You can find them, but it's difficult, so. Now we're here to ask the questions. You can answer them however you want. <laughs> and uh, allow us in our imagination to read between the lines and have our, our dreams. And, you know, you guys have been executing in a very good way for the most part, especially in DP. So we appreciate the response. And I also want to tell the listeners, Wilkins listens to Shoulder to Shoulder. So I think you guys should too. Yeah, look, um, I'm I'm eagerly awaiting Leroy Sané showing up at the airport and you letting us know what number he's going to wear. We're looking forward to that. But um, you mentioned it earlier, you know, with the departure of Kim Moon-Wan, we now have at least from a depth chart standpoint, three bodies for what is normally four positions. So with that in mind, beyond the open DP slot, how many bodies are we looking to add between now and a playoff push, assuming that the squad we have stays relatively healthy? So I don't, I wouldn't put a number on it, but I think, I think we'll look to add what we think we need. Right. And it's always, it's always hard. Right? There's, there's sort of what do we want versus what do we need. And, you know, I, I think we're going to get a big boost of Eddie Segura coming back off the disabled list. You know, uh, it feels like forever ago that Eddie played, but man, I mean, that's a guy who's an absolute warrior um, and it's going to bring a lot to the group. So that I look at as a transaction in and of itself, right? Like getting, getting Eddie back in the mix is like, that's a win. You know, I, I am always hesitant to, to promote guys too soon, but you know, we recently signed Nathan Ordaz, who has been uh, really attracting a ton of attention through his play in the academy. You know, that's a guy that we think can spell us down the road if we need to, right? You got Danny Masovsky, who seems like every time he comes in is making things happen. And so we we feel really good about our depth now. We don't feel like we necessarily have to add anything, but there's a couple areas which we think we might might add. But for, if you're asking me, I think Eddie Segura coming off is a huge piece and then maybe one other uh, attacking piece. 
Brilliant. Well, you've been very, very generous with your time this evening. We thank you for that. We have one final question for you this evening. It's a question we ask every guest on the show and always seems to deliver a brilliant yet unique answer. And that is, of course, Mr. Wilkins. What does shoulder to shoulder mean to you, sir? Yeah, uh, shoulder to shoulder means uh, being able to, the greatest part about my job is when we win. And, you know, I get to sit, hang back, you know, 35 yards behind the goal or in front of the goal while our players do the Shalala champ, right, in front of the 32-52. And, you know, the feeling that you get from that, right, seeing everybody united, seeing everybody together, that is what I think of when I think shoulder to shoulder, right? It is just a, we are, like, the supporters are the team and the team is the supporters, like, the club is the fans, the fans are the club. It is all together. When we give up goals at Bank of California Stadium, it's all, if you were just to listen to like a live stream audio recording of the stadium, apart from the PA announcer coming and saying, you know, opposing goals scored by whoever, you would not be able to tell that we gave up a goal. Like our fans are united behind this team. They push us to greater heights. Yeah, I, I said at the event the other day, and it, it's true. Watch at the start of every game when Dolly Black and Gold starts, or Dolly Dolly Black and Gold, and the drums start right before kickoff. The opposing team's bench always has players that just can't help but watch the 32-52. The game is taking place, and they are not paying attention because you have an entire section of the stadium, an entire fan base, who's just literally shoulder to shoulder, right? Um, so it's doing it together. It's doing it for the city. It's doing it for all of us. It's giving more than you've got, but then knowing that that's going to be less than the guy next to me gives or the girl to the other side of me gives, right? Uh, it's, it's our stadium. It's our fans. It's our culture. It's that feeling of, unity and and hell guys like it's it's always shoulder to shoulder like before the game after the game it's there we give up a goal shoulder to shoulder we score a goal it's shoulder to shoulder with a beer shower it's awesome it, it's it's electric it's different and uh, it's real wow we really appreciate you coming on the show today once again folks our guest today has been the Wunderkind himself i'm sure they had to have modeled that character in ted lasso after you right you have the was... intern that rises up through to achieve new heights you know i mean aside from his whole dark turn at the end of the last season here oh sorry spoiler alert Close. for those of you who haven't finished season two of ted lasso i apologize but but seriously though i mean you know someone who you know worked and scrimped and did the night schooling and everything they could possibly do and worked as an intern and fought your way from step to step i just you know I'm so grateful that we have you here at LAFC and I really hope the next Yankees don't come along and steal you from us. No, I, I was always listening. I was always more kid than Wunder for sure. And uh, I ain't a kid anymore. Right. Uh, so, but it, it means a lot. And listen, I, there's nothing I want more than an, an LAFC ring, right? Like guys, like we, I feel like I own the city. Right? I feel like it's been four seasons and we haven't delivered yet, but this feels like home now. You guys like it, it's weird for me. Right. So, I listen to you guys every week and now to be talking to you and even Jonathan, when you came up, when you came up after the event, you're like, Hey, I've been trying to get in touch with you. I was like, uh, Ash, I was like, really? Like, but this is awesome. And uh, yeah, it means a lot. And I love what you guys do. We appreciate you listening, you know, and it, it, the three of us will talk over once in a while. I'll be like, Hey, you think that they just like put the episode on in the background do when they're like doing stuff and they're just like listening to what people are saying about the club and, you know, it's like it's like um, they're putting up the message boards of like trash talk or whatever. It's like the stuff that's going to be hung up on the board. Like, oh, we're going to remember that people say board that board material. Right. You know, it's, board it's, material. It's wild, though. But like, I don't really ever have 
conversations with people where I'm like, you know more about the club than I do. But like with you three, like it might be, like, it might be, right? Like, and I think you, your experience and the ability to, to be in the North End during games and have sat all over the place and to, and to like, you guys actually maybe do know more about the club than I do in a weird way. And like, that's awesome, right? Your, your guys' feel, your, your passion, your, like you, you guys are watching, right? You're not just saying stuff, like you're, you're watching what's going on, you're connecting the dots. Uh, so that's great. Uh, but yeah, like it's it's different and it's special. And I just hope I can can do a good enough job for you guys. I know we'll take the compliment, even though you might be being a little facetious compared to what you know. But it's been a pleasure Listen, to be able I've to never have been you on the receiving end of a beer shower. You know, like oh. that's that's real talk, right? Like I, I just don't know that I'm never gonna know what that's like. You're, yeah, um, but we also never stood in the rafters and watched a game either. So you know, you <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can't bring a beer up there. So like you know, like that's that's the give and take. You're welcome on the pod anytime. If you ever want to, you know, come or we want to hear our reactions real time and see our faces and <laughs> listen to us after, uh, you know, a tough weekend or a glorious weekend. You know, the invitation's always open. Same goes for the North End. You want to come get that first beer shower? You're welcome anytime, brother. Listen, that, that's like that's opening Pandora's box, right? Because then it's going to be like, hey, John, listen, like, I, I know we've been watching up here for a long time, but I think I really got to watch Max in the second half, right? Like, I really got to know what's what it looks like from the, from a north-south perspective. But, yeah, but that'll go sideways real quick, so. Well, hopefully we clinch it early, and, uh, you know, we've already got ourselves a supporter shield, and there's a couple games left that uh, might allow your attention to be diverted. But, uh, again, thank you so much for your time, folks. Our guest has been Will Kuntz, the Senior Vice President of Football Operations and the Assistant General Manager of the Los Angeles Football Club. We are going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with this week's correspondent after this. Yo, this is Shavo from System of a Down, and you're listening to Shoulder to Shoulder Podcast. All right, we are back with this week's opponent correspondent. And again, we are welcoming back to the show Matt Pollard, who is known as Red, and he is from the Rapids 96 Podcast, holding the high line at Rapids 96 Podcast. And of course, you can follow Matt Pollard, who also represents Last Word on Soccer. His username is LWOS Matt Pollard. Matthew, thank you very much for coming back, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, Chris. Exciting to talk about, you know, a team that's from Los Angeles and has black and shiny, and then a team that wears burgundy and blue from Colorado. And of course, we're not talking about the Stanley Cup playoffs. No, you know what? I mean, we could talk Stanley Cup playoffs if you'd like. You it's know? going, it's, it's <laughs> the absolute, the certain, the other burgundy boys are the, the, the Denver Broncos hockey team is doing better than the Denver Broncos soccer team. Yeah, it's, you know, it's been, it's been a little bit of a tough run of form lately. It's definitely something that we want to get into. You know, you, you look at the, the Western Conference standings right now, and you can see that the tables have not really fallen and the results have not really fallen in the way of Colorado. They're currently sitting in ninth place, three wins, three ties, four losses. You know, can you kind of give us a little bit, obviously we had you guys on the first week of the season. There was a little bit of that optimism. I know that, you know, at that point in time, you guys were in the CCL. And so the, the starting lineup was not necessarily going to be everything that you guys had to offer because you, you did have that CCL match. Uh, but now it's a different time. What, you know, tell us, tell us a little bit about how Colorado is playing and what's going on with the club. 
Yeah, the results have been up and down, you know, kind of the really the only impressive victories that they've had have been home matches against teams that have either had injuries or been on a poor run of form, you know, having that, you know, no good, very awful week, uh, you know, last time I was on the pod where they crash out in penalties in Snow Classical 4 and then obviously understandably come out against LAFC, bogey team, they never play well, Kellen Acosta creates the first penalty that gets the first goal because of course he does, and it's like, okay, this game's going to be 3-0, it's just a matter of whether or not Bella is getting a hat trick or somebody else is scoring. And then they get a result against Atlanta that I think in hindsight wasn't as impressive as we might have liked. Get a home result against Sporting Kansas City. Similarly, we've seen how their season's gone. And then you look at the last three games that you thought would have been relatively cupcake playing Charlotte FC with where Colorado finished in the Western Conference last year. They got a buy from that round of the Open Cup. At time of recording, they'll be playing at Minnesota tomorrow in, I think, the fifth round, officially, of the Open Cup. It's the round of 32. So you figure you're playing an expansion team, their first game at altitude. They've got a game midweek. Greenville Triumph forced them into 120 minutes in that one. That should be a cupcake win. It was a nil-nil draw with no shots on goal. They trade for Giassi Zardis. They look very good in a win against Portland Timbers, but then Portland didn't have Diego Chara, didn't have Sebastian Blanco. You look at statistically what those what that team is like with one of those two missing, let alone both of them. And then obviously a really disappointing result on the weekend against San Jose, where the team came out was lackluster, didn't really have, didn't have an answer to the chaos that San Jose was creating with their high press. And you can complain all you want about the non-handball call against Nathan that for me should have been a pen and a dog. So red card against them. The fact that that was your one big chance, I think shows that this team is in flux right now with injuries to Danny Wilson and Jack Price at the spine of the team. Um, and they're still figuring out how to incorporate um, Giassi's artists into the team and make that work with him and Diego Rubio and a few of the other pieces. And the results have shown. So let's talk about that for a second. You know, you mentioned Giassi's artists, and uh, th- that was an acquisition that just happened just a few weeks ago at the end of April. Also, back in March, since the last time we had you on. Gustavo Vallecilla was another de- another player that was acquired a uh, defender. You acquired him from FC Cincinnati. We had up in the air the talk about the designated players and and finding those players to fill those roles. Jossie Zardes not necessarily a player that is of that designated player category. At least right now, it's at one point in his career he might have been considered one. I know he did fill that role a little bit with Columbus. But how do you foresee this dynamic eventually working out once they are able to get comfortable? Obviously, you're going to have a little bit of those road bumps and learning curve. But eventually, I this might be a good fit. Or how do you look at it? I think the fan base in the club is absolutely ecstatic to get Giassi's artists. I think especially the way that they acquired him, I think it kind of messed it. It, it worked for both clubs because the incentives are there to where if Giassi ends up being uh, certainly much better than uh, Miguel Barry will be for Columbus, then Columbus is going to get compensated accordingly. And I think Colorado gave up uh, an appropriate value for where his stock is for a guy who frankly wasn't playing a whole lot. I think it's a breath of fresh air. For Giassi's artists, we have seen other players come in and be part of that, you know, revenge of the distressed assets, the island of misfit toys for the Colorado Rapids and be extremely effective. We've seen that with Mark Anthony Kay, who's the star attacking midfielder right now for the Colorado Rapids. We've seen that with Lalas Abubakar, Austin Trusty coming over from Philly. Um, we've seen that from Kellen Acosta, who I think now is the, you know, revenge of the I will go show you with my new team that is top of the Supporters Shield standings where we could have been this season had you kept me. I think we're optimistic about that. You know, I think obviously Conf- 
confidence is going to be a big thing. I think tactically what they look like, it's mostly been a 3-4-3 empty bucket from Robin Frazier. They tried out the 4-3-3 the last two games. I think things fit out really nicely if Frazier's okay with going to a back four of them going 4-2-3-1, Jack Price and one of the other midfielders. And then you have Jossie Zardes as the target man and then Diego Rubio as the more withdrawn, false 9 e pressing, getting on the ball in the midfield striker um, that he was very effective of to 2019 with Kai Kamara in that role. The only difference is Jossie Zardes is a wonderful teammate and Kai Kamara eventually starts to stir things up after two or three years when he's in any particular one place. So I think long-term we're kind of optimistic about it, but obviously Jossie has to get settled. There's certain things that Robin Frazier is looking for from his team, but I think Jossie's already fit in. He's already a Rapids player with how humble and unassuming he is for a guy who's won two MLS Cups at two different clubs. And I think also he was on the, um, he got asked about the game against Portland after winning it. And he said, you know, well, we lost to these guys in the playoffs. So there was automatically revenge there. Jassy was not on the team last year. He was new to the team. He had been to the team for eight days and he already understood we don't like the Portland Timbers. They beat us in the playoffs last year. Um, you know, I, this is a guy who already hates RSL probably. So um, I think he's fit in with um, how the team is, he fits in absolutely culturally. But as you said, there's going to be some things to fit in tactically. And then you mentioned Gustavo Baezia, who's been mostly a bench player right now. Early indications are the Rapids really like him from a possession standpoint. I don't think there's any question in my mind, uh, post-Austin trustee leaving to Arsenal in the summer, that he will be that replacement should the Rapids still want to run a back five, in which case you go 5-3-2, and then it's Jossie. It'd be more of a 5-3-1-1 um, in terms of what I was talking about with Rubio and Gisardis' role up top. So at time of recording tonight, we are recording on a Tuesday night. LAFC is set to kick off against Portland in 20 minutes, and you guys have a match tomorrow against Minnesota. Because a bit of the U.S. Open lore and the fact that some teams have different focuses on whether or not they want to focus on the U.S. Open Cup or focus on the, the main season, I'm kind of expecting that LAFC is going to give an opportunity to some bench players today so that hopefully then we have fresher legs for this upcoming weekend. What uh, what are your feelings about the squad rotation and the balance with a match on Wednesday and then having to play a match this weekend? Yeah, I think I think tomorrow in Minnesota is effectively going to be a Rapids two versus Loons two game. We've seen a couple of homegrowns who've had some good moments with Rapids two that Robin Frazier has wanted to get more minutes for the first team. It hasn't worked for a bunch of reasons, and I won't go through all five of them in their individual situations. But you know, Yaya Torre and Darren Yappi are kind of the two attacking pieces up top that Robin Frazier has wanted to get minutes so I think we'll see a bunch of the kids maybe Colin Warner gets a start especially if he's not starting but you look at Lal Sububakar who was subbed out for potentially uh, retweaking his hamstring Danny Wilson and Jack Price already injured as well um, and then you know the fact that Jossie Zardes had to play more minutes last Saturday because um, Diego Rubio was unavailable due to a red card against Portland. I expect a fully heavy rotated squad. I think Clint Irwin gets a start. Maybe Gustavo Viasina, who I mentioned earlier, maybe he starts and then gets subbed off so that he's available with some fresh legs for LEFC. But, you know, if I had to handicap it, I would imagine um, you're not going to see more than three or four regular starters from the Rapids tomorrow night. And I would anticipate at least five of the 11 will be players that we more associate with Rapids too than with the first team right now. Yeah. I'm looking at this roster actually, you know, I, I looked at the clock and I was like, Oh, the LAFC would put the roster out. So, you know, Max Kripo at goal, Hollingshead, Ibiaga, Fall, 
Palacios. Palacios and Fall are definitely two of the starters. Uh, Ilya Sanchez, Sifu, Blessing, Opoku, Orongo, and Masovsky. So, I mean, it looks like LAFC is definitely mixing it in, I would say, half and half. Half of their normal everyday starters and half of the players with the role players in it. You know, I wonder if uh, maybe Steve Trundolo is looking ahead to think, hey, let me let me split both, try and make a solid effort here at the U.S. Open Cup, especially because Colorado is currently struggling at the moment with their running form and that maybe it's like, hey, I can do a hybrid of both, like a, a half and half for this game and a half and half for the next game. It'll be interesting to see. Yeah, no, I would agree. Um, and I think the other factor you have there is the fact that we're the, we're the afternoon game in Espanol. On the afternoon, I would assume LAFC is traveling on the Friday where we've seen for some night games, the teams, the away team will actually travel the day of. So there's certain that I, I, I can go down the rabbit hole if you want, but there's a lot of science about when you arrive and then whether or not you've slept at altitude and that kind of a situation that can be a factor that could effectively burn a day or hurt you from a training standpoint. So I think the, I, I, I think Steve Chirendolo is being um, uh, calculated and pragmatic with that. Um, Chris, I would assume no Chicha or Vela on the bench? Vela is on the bench, and okay. Chicho Rongo is actually in the starting 11. Uh, McCarthy, Escobar, Janela, Vela, Acosta, Jennings, and Leon. Tony Leon uh, are the bench players for this match. Okay, well, we'll see what happens in that game, and uh, certainly if it goes 120 minutes for either team, I think that's certainly another variable to take into account when we get to fitness in the 75th minute on Saturday. Yes, absolutely. Let's get down to this weekend. What do you think is a potential outcome for your Colorado Rapids side for this weekend? Yeah, um, I think this could be a 1-1 draw, to be honest. I think we've seen LAFC be very, very good on set pieces. I've been really impressed with the tactical changes that Steve Chirondolo's done in the second half, both tactically and then what he's done from a personnel standpoint. Correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, I think it's eight or nine goals by substitutes this season. You know, Yeah, it's been nine. And, and nine now? only okay. one goal allowed in the second half all season long, which is an, an incredible stat. I At some point, we were all sitting here wondering when the other shoe was going to drop because it, it, that's just something that was going to be a hard one to maintain. Yeah, we'll we'll see about what that looks like from an impressed, you know, I've, I've been really impressed with that. I've been, you know, I LAFC was for me, at least the team that I would have that, you know, was like the one big bogey team. They could be the last team. They could be the first team out of the playoffs. They could finish top three in the Western Conference. And I think certainly a, a, yeah, a reinvigorated Carlos Vela, I think an improved back line. Uh, has certainly benefited the team significantly. And, you know, obviously Chirondolo's pushing the right buttons right now, but I think some of their strengths go up against the inherent strengths that the Rapids have. You talk about being a second half team and what do you do with that at altitude, especially in the afternoon where you're going to be sweating a lot more, you know, it's not California hot, but you know, it could be, it'll be high seventies to mid eighties on Saturday, potentially, which is it's hot for Colorado. I'll say that much, even with the humidity situation. So I think that's going to be a factor. I think the fact that you're maybe getting heavy legs from having to play open cup and then lay at altitude and not being used to that might negate some of the inherent strengths that LAFC have. So I have a one, one drop, but you know, given where the Rapids have been and kind of the lack of them being goal dangerous without Diego Rubio on the field, if Diego Rubio is not his game, or if for some reason, Robin Frazier has him play, 120 minutes and penalties tomorrow night, then I think the Rapids attack could be impotent. It uh, it would not shock me if LAFC won this game. At the same time, we've seen when the Rapids are doubted or when something really bad happens to them, particularly if they feel wrong from an officiating standpoint, they come out as I think the 
phrase that Robin Frazier used is uh, have that propel them forward with a ton of anger. I could see them come out and be, you know, as fiery and pissed off as we've ever seen them. And then they boss the game and somehow get a 2-0 result. So I have it being a 1-1 draw. Any one of the three possible outcomes would not shock me. Well, it's set to be a good match. I think that it's always going to be interesting, especially when we do have these midweek matches and you have to see the juggling of the rosters. I appreciate you coming on again. My guest has been Matt Pollard. Uh, he is the representative uh, for the Colorado Rapids on holding the Highline podcast at Rapids 96 podcast. number. Uh, that is the number 96. And he's also uh, represents the Rapids uh, for last word on soccer. You can follow him on social media, L-W-O-S, Matt Pollard, P-O-L-L-A-R-D. Uh, and that is uh, where you can get all of his information Again, Matthew, thank you very much. Uh, you know, this is the last regular season match. Depending on how you guys do against Minnesota and how we do against Portland, we might see each other again in the U.S. Open Cup or we might see each other in the postseason. But either way, we uh, look forward to having you back on again. And, uh, you know, good luck. Oh, thank, thank you absolutely for having me. And I, and I, I just I want to say I think Kellen Acosta has been really, really good for the team as well. So the same revenge energy that he's had with uh, the Colorado Rapids, he's continued to LAFC. And we'll see what that means for him in the World Cup or potentially LAFC cashing out on his move to Europe in January. Yeah, absolutely. I don't I don't foresee Kellen Acosta wearing the black and gold for very long. I would say maybe maybe this season or 18 months at the most. You know, I do think that the uh, that the opportunity at the World Cup level is going to be the difference maker in whether or not we see him. But I I guess I'm ambitious to think that it's not going to be long that he plays for us. Anyways, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. And we'll talk soon. Thank you. What's up, familiar your boy here once again, the Hood Foodie. And today you're listening to the Shoulder to Shoulder podcast. So make sure you guys come out, support, and tell them that the Hood Foodie sent you. All right, gentlemen, we've just had our OpCore get us all ready for this upcoming weekend versus Cronkies Rapids. We're going to be taking that trip a mile high to go take on Colorado. So, gentlemen, what are your predictions versus the Crapids? Let's see. So I've got my 2-0 victory, so I can't go with that again. No, you know what I think? So Colorado obviously was playing a day later in the U.S. Open Cup than LAFC, okay? That doesn't help them. They're also playing in Minnesota, so they had some traveling to do before they have to travel back home. Well, they, they just had to delay their game because of bad weather. So now Colorado has to play Minnesota on Thursday. And they, had, they only got like 15 or 20 minutes into the game. So they still have to play practically a whole match. And then they're going to fly home tomorrow. So they're going to have probably some type of rest or maybe light practice Friday game on Saturday. So I feel like they're going to have some tired legs. I feel like they're not going to be able to prepare as well as they probably would have liked to. So I feel like LAFC is going to have the advantage. Plus, you also look at the run of form like we talked about with Matt. You know, they're just they're not playing well right now. So I'm going to say it's going to be an LAFC victory 3-0. For the same reasons as Chris, but I'll say 2-0. Yeah, I'm going to have to agree. Uh, Colorado clearly does not have some Dr. Scholes in them boots because they are not gelling right now. However, the fighting Mark Anthony K's are going to step it up versus LAFC. There's always going to be just a little bit on his shoulder. Also, you have Kellen Acosta's first game back in Colorado as well, too. And so I think there's a desire amongst the fans and the players there to show that they got the right end of the deal and to show that they're, they're moving forward. 
and LAFC have buttoned up the first 20, 30 minutes of games a little bit, but we're still seeing these momentary lapses of defensive prowess, be it on a counterattack or just be it in some moments where players are out of position. Uh, you know, they're, they're ball watching a little bit. And, you know, we have these moments where defensively we do not look as solid as we would all like us to be yet. Yes. I, I, I know that's a little bit of pointing out a blemish on the Mona Lisa, but still, as well as this team's playing, I would be hard-pressed to think that we are going to go on the road and keep a clean sheet. I do think LAFC is going to win this. I think it's going to be 2-1 or 3-1 simply because they have to travel a couple time zones and delayed and weather. I'll go ahead and give us the advantage of 3-1, assuming the weather plays along with us in Colorado this weekend, and it's not uh, miserable weather up there, which could stifle and change the whole temperature of the game both uh literally and and figuratively so i'm gonna go ahead and say yeah it's 3-1 lafc i'll be optimistic um i do think vela is due he hasn't scored in a while and i think acosta is gonna get himself a goal versus his old team as well too um gentlemen do you have anything else you'd like to say to the fans before we go ahead and wrap up 118 uh not you know what it's again if anybody wants to come on the show and be a guest tell us your why tell us how you became an lafc fan please reach out to us any of us at LAFCS2S, you can email any of us. Uh, hit us up on social media. We'd love to just meet you guys, learn your story. We haven't had a guest on in a, in a little bit of time, you know, like a, just an a, the everyday fan. So, uh, you know, come tell us your story. We'd love to meet you and, uh, you know, give you uh, the opportunity. Yeah, y'all come and say what up to us at the bank. I get lots of hugs from random people I've never met before who say they love the show. And I always say, hey, man, come on the show. Hit us up. And you go, oh, yeah been meaning to do that i should send you a message pick up your phone right now at lafc s2s all your social media platforms slide into those dms and get yourself on this show all right christian what do you got for the peeps i think you said the things that i was thinking about um i'm just excited for everyone to listen to the will coons portion of the show i'm just happy with i have nothing else to say other than please listen subscribe rate review and also make sure you give us some likes on the uh, social media. Um, it really helps out. And uh, looking forward to the rest of the season. We're trending in the right direction and um, very optimistic. And more reasons to now that we're a quarter of the way through the season. You said it. Once again, folks, we would like to thank Davundakint himself, Will Kuntz, Senior Vice President of Football Operations and Assistant General Manager of the Los Angeles Football Club for joining us as this week's guest. Also, we would like to thank our opponent correspondent this week, representing the Colorado Rapids, Matt Pollard, from Holding the High Line. Two wonderful people out there. You guys obviously know Will. You guys should check out Matt's work with Holding the High Line as well, too. Give them a follow as well, too. We'd appreciate you supporting our op course. With that, folks, that's going to call us for episode 118. Take us home, Sticks. Together, this our culture. Feel the force of a supernova. Stay flying that FC Dorsum. Hey, shopping down to Nikki's Koreatown Liddy. Cape us so mommy, about to drop her fifth. They won't need to stop, but I ain't. Come to my house, I'll defend that bank.